This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Cunning Visions from Jim Cunningham. All over America, people have come together to join hands. People who believe that human life is absolutely too important, too valuable, and too precious to be controlled by fear. Become a fear survivor with Controlling Fear, the new self-help home video cassette series from Cunning Visions and Jim Cunningham. Thank you, Jim Cunningham. This episode of Pod Cemetery is also made possible by the generous support of listeners like you over at Patreon.com/PodCemetery. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are, and it's uh, Multiverse Mind Fuckery Week on Pod Cemetery with 2001's Donnie Darko and 2013's Coherence. I'd say it's a choosing your fate week. Interesting. Interesting choose-your-own-adventure. <laughs> Interesting way to frame it. Okay, all right. Well, let's start with our classic film, 2001's Donnie Darko, written and directed by Richard Kelly, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Jenna Malone, Mary McDonnell, Maggie Gyllenhaal, James Duvall, Patrick Swayze, Drew Barrymore, Noah Wiley, and Seth Rogen. This was actually Richard Kelly's First ever script he wrote. Took him about a month and a half. And the first draft is pretty damn close to apparently what their shooting script was. Of course, we can't get very far without saying that that shooting draft was what would ultimately become effectively the quote-unquote director's cut. Although Kelly himself would consider it more like a special edition. Mm. He thinks the actual theatrical version is the director's cut. Like, he cut it down to the movie he wanted. Oh. And that... And that's the other one, sort of a special edition. And that's closer to what, when they debuted it at a film festival, I can't remember which one, it was closer to what the director's cut is now. But what we got in the theaters was like his version of it. And then he had another special edition, which added in a lot of the scenes that they originally shot and that were originally in his script. Well, I think the theatrical cut is much better. Interestingly, he uses the term in one interview, parallel universe or a dream. Is, is how he refers to what's going on in this movie. So I, I think we should keep that in mind as we talk about this. Of course, also Drew Barrymore is in this movie, so we should probably talk about the fact that her production company, Flower Films, whose first film was Never Been Kissed, <laughs> and then they did Charlie's Angels. Mm-hmm. And while they were making Charlie's Angels, she made that agreement with Richard Kelly that she would produce it. Interestingly, she got interested in the script first because she liked Rushmore. He wrote Rushmore? No, but Jason Schwartzman was in Rushmore. Yes. And this was the next movie he was going to do. Jason Schwartzman was supposed to be in this? Yeah, he was supposed to be Donnie Darko. Oh, no. And that's why she signed on. Don't get me wrong. I really like Jason Schwartzman, Uh but that would have been a mistake. But apparently Flower Films were like... 
well, what else is he working on? She really liked him in Rushmore. And so they're like, oh, he's working on this Donnie. And that's how they got into these conversations. And then ultimately, Drew Barrymore's and his schedules just conflicted until eventually he had to drop out. Well, thank goodness. But she was like, well, we're still making this movie. Like, she was still totally into it. And she assured Richard Kelly that, no, we're going to make this movie. It is going to happen. We're going to find a new Donnie. And we're going to make an incredible film. And so that's exactly what they did. Kelsey, what is Donnie Darko about? A teenage boy with emotional problems, but trying to work through them, is given a glimpse of what life could be, depending on a decision he makes at the end. It's basically a reverse It's a Wonderful Life. He gets to see the world if he lives. Yes. And how that will impact everyone around him. Although one could very easily argue that what happens at the end doesn't actually have to happen. Although, I suppose his mother and sister would die. Would die, yes. I mean, that's part of it. There's a lot of kind of holes in the, in the plot. Yes, there are. Here's the thing I will say. We did watch the theatrical version because there's no way Kelsey would allow us to watch the director's cut. And we'll get into the differences as we go along. But our conversation is not going to necessarily be about right answers. There's a lot of conversation that can go around about this movie and you can get into semantics. And we'll touch on semantics. But, like, if something's not the right interpretation, who cares? Like, we just don't. The the biggest difference I would say between the theatrical and director's cut is that the director's cut leaves less to the imagination. Yes. It results in less fun conversations to be had. It treats you like you can't figure this stuff out on your own. Yeah. You see a lot more details about the time travel book. Yeah. Like they actually show you pages and people stop it and they read it all. And then they say, this is the actual right answer. And it's like, we're not interested in that. We're not interested and we won't be impressed by any um actuallys that come out of this. If you want to comment on this movie, by all means do, but add to the conversation. Like don't, um, actually this is, unless we get something like drastically incorrect like we say something happens in the movie and it doesn't or something like that right the movie is popular and fun because of its vagaries i think and a lot of other things obviously but not because it has like the definitive version of time travel or multiverses or whatever look time travel is impossible so any movie that tries to make it seem possible is going to have holes and that's okay we've had plenty of conversations about time travel in the past and we'll have more in this one Kelsey the movie is available on HBO Max AMC plus canopy and shutter on Amazon with a subscription and with ads on film rise you can rent it for two dollars on Amazon Google Play and YouTube and for three dollars. On Microsoft's Marketplace, you can buy it for $8 on Microsoft, so they get a little redemption there, and $10 on Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, and Vudu. It's important to point out, I'm talking about the theatrical cut. Kelsey, should people watch Donnie Darko? Yes. And that's where the conversation ends. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's not a horror movie. So, like, 
Don't go into it expecting that. Well, one of the things people really tend to like about this movie is how, like, genre-bending it is. Because it's a little horrified. There are scary things in it. There are, there, you know, there are scary concepts in it. Right. Um, it's more and, intellectually right. horrifying. Yes. But ultimately, I would call it a drama. Well, yeah. <laughs> But like I say, there's some overlap of genre. So like we have a lot of things that are dramas like last week. I mean, this is like two weeks in a row. We have movies that are kind of not quite horror movies. So this will be another one of those weeks. But there are overlaps in the genres here. And drama is sort of like a an er genre where it like can apply to multiple different subgenres. Anyway, yes, you should watch Donnie Darko. It came out at the perfect time. The movie is for, like, a particular age, and we were around that age when this movie came out. I graduated high school this year. What year did this come out? 2001. 2001. Which was a big problem because there's a plot element here of a crashing plane, and that was the year of 9-11, and they had on posters and in advertisements the crashing plane. Really? Yeah, and so this movie kind of came out with... They basically abandoned their marketing campaign for the movie. And so it really got its life on home video. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. But so it came out after two th- after September yeah, uh-huh. of 2001? Yeah. So that means I was... I just turned 14 as a freshman in high school when this came out. Uh-huh. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2001's... Donnie Darko. It was as though this plan had been with him all his life. Now, in his 15th year, crystallized with the pain of puberty. I haven't seen stuff. Well, I think what you're talking about is um, an act of God. Come closer. Time is running out. Donnie! Donnie Darko. We're just going to stop. Rated R starts Friday. All right, Kelsey, how do you want to have this conversation? Because uh, if we were to just break down the plot like we normally do and use that to guide our conversation, that might be a little bit more difficult. I can practically, I practically know all the lines in this movie. Yeah, she really does. (laughs) She was like reciting them as they were being said. So it's not a good idea to go through this scene by scene it'll take us forever a lot longer so i think we should just stick to our our favorite things about the film well do we want to go over like an overarching plot first and then do favorite things or you do it then and i'll just pipe in okay okay so we have donnie dorko drugs are you addicted so what donnie dorko i need them to write donnie darko (laughs) so what donnie dorko that's a that's from when Jake Gyllenhaal hosted Saturday Night Live. Oh, really? Yeah, they called him Donnie Dorco in one skit. <laughs> <laughs> He's a kid in Maryland, apparently. Is it Maryland? Apparently it's Maryland. And he has, like Kelsey says, emotional problems. At one point, his doctor will basically call him a paranoid schizophrenic. And he has... Well, that's because... 
of what he's actually seeing. Right, but you need to ask yourself, you need to ask yourself some questions. Again, there are no right answers here. You need to ask yourself some questions about, is he seeing this because it's happening or because he's schizophrenic? But he also sees things that do in fact predict the future. Yeah, no. So... I, I, especially if you've seen the director's cut, I think it is very blatantly, this is actually happening. These are things that he's actually seeing and interacting with. And... She is basing her diagnosis on this interaction, and I understand why, but we as an audience know that it is actually taking place. Right. He, but it might be, you know, little column A, little column B. <laughs> no reason it can't be both, right? <laughs> so he has a sort of troubled home life where he sort of resents the way he's treated because he's sent to therapy and stuff like that. Obviously, he gets in arguments with his sister, who is played by his real sister, Maggie Gyllenhaal. And also his little sister, Samantha, who is the S. Darko from the sequel. Oh, she is in the sequel? Well, she is the S. Darko, Samantha. Right, but the same actress is in the sequel? I didn't think so. Yeah, she is. It's the actual actress. I heard somebody say, like, this was the time, movies like this and American Psycho, where they would just make sequels because they didn't understand why people liked it in the first place. But they're like, oh, it's really popular. We got to make a sequel now. And it's like, this is not a field that's ripe for sequels. No. And then they end up making a sequel that nobody likes. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, he sees his therapist. Dr. Thurman, dad. Yes, Dr. Thurman, who is played by Catherine Ross, who we've had on this show before. She is Joanna Eberhardt from The Stepford Wives. I knew she looked familiar. (laughs) I didn't know why. (laughs) And that is why. Blew my mind because I have seen Stepford Wives. I have seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Hell, I've seen The Graduate. And I never once put her as any of those same actresses. Yeah, uh uh-huh. So one night, October 2nd, he gets woken up in the middle of the night, and he walks to a golf course where he meets Frank. Well, he sleepwalks. They've already, they establish in the very first scene that he sleepwalks. uh So he sleepwalks to a golf course and talks to a man-sized rabbit named Frank. This is James Duvall, who, I'm sorry, I can't see and not think of Doom Generation. And I think of Independence Day because you're wrong. We've had him on the show twice before in both Independence Day and May. Not in Independence Day Resurgence for some reason. uh I don't know why. But I just, I can't see him without thinking of Doom Generation. I'm sorry. While he's out talking to Frank, who tells him that the world is going to end in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. 28 days. Six hours, 42 minutes, 12 seconds. That is when the world will end. A jet engine falls on his house right where Donnie would have been sleeping if he had not sleepwalked that night. Yes. And it's a big deal and his parents are relieved when he walks up the next morning And they're like, oh, God, you're still because we knew you weren't in your room. But where were you? We were terrified. You know, yada, yada, yada. If he was in bed, he would have died. Frankie Fiedler. You remember. From high school. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. He died. Remember? Mm-hmm. On his way to the prom, he said he was doomed. Jesus. They could be saying the same thing about Donnie. Our Donnie. Somebody was watching over him. We also meet Grandma Death, who is Roberta Sparrow, is the character's name. We will find out that she used to be a teacher at the school. She got really into time travel, wrote a book left teaching and well, before that she was a nun yes and she uh now is kind of this old lady that walks to her to mailbox her mailbox all expecting day. a letter uh-huh um, she will eventually that get. she will actually eventually get they call her grandma death although when did he send that so before he went to bed when he went back in time or did he send it in the future? Well, he writes the letter in the movie, and we yes, assume it's sometime after he, that. When does he write it? He reads the letter aloud to the audience over a sequence of showing him getting, like, going to bed. So I'm like, okay, so did he, okay, so did he go back in time and then write it? I guess. I don't remember vividly what exactly happened. I don't think that matters all that much. Anyway, he goes to school where he has two teachers that he really likes, or he likes enough, I should say. We have Drew Barrymore. His English teacher. Who is Miss Pomeroy. And she but talks she to them. is she married to? She's at least dating Noah Wiley's character, who is the science teacher or the math teacher, one of the two. No, science, yeah. Mr. Monotoff. Yeah. She is teaching a short story called The Destructors by Graham Greene. At one point, he is mistaken by a third teacher uh, for their Lauren Green. teacher, yeah. Miss Farmer. And I hate that Miss Farmer. She's such a fucking bitch. Miss Farmer, uh, played by Beth Grant. She confuses him with Lauren Green, who was the patriarch character on... Bonanza. Bonanza? Kitty, you even know who Graham Green is? I think we have all seen Bonanza. <gasps> Uh, who's apparently Sam Raimi's father-in-law, I guess. Although <laughs> he died in the 80s, but oh. yeah, he he is apparently Sam Raimi's father-in-law. Evil Dead makes an appearance in this movie, and Jenna Malone's character falls asleep right away. Yes. So that's fun. Jenna Malone is a new character who shows up, Gretchen. And it's behavior like this that gets teachers fired nowadays. Yeah. Miss <laughs> Pomeroy, Drew Barrymore, tells her to sit next to the boy that she thinks is cutest. And that is Donnie Darko. Right, which I totally understand. Jake Gyllenhaal's amazing. I get it. But, like, in this day and age... Also assuming that she's assuming straight. That she's straight. Yeah. Uh-huh. All that stuff. And having anything to do with their personal lives, anything to do with their love lives, like, get you in trouble. So yes. it's just a ridiculous thing. But in the 80s, I believe that would have happened. Because mm-hmm. the 80s were a different time. 
Miss Farmer, Beth Grant, uh, the PE teacher. And I hate that Miss Farmer. She is also the dance instructor for the dance group that Samantha, Donnie's little sister, is a part of. Yes. Called Sparkle Motion. And her daughter, Joni, is also part of that. Yep, and they're friends. And Even though she's... Joni is Donnie's age. Is she? Yeah, so I kind of got the impression that because they go to a private school, it's probably all ages K through like, yeah, twelve, uh-huh. right? So yeah. like, I believe that they might be like friends, but like, I guess she's possibly sixth grade, but he's like at least like a sophomore, right? In high school, wouldn't you imagine? Oh yeah, at least. So why would like? I guess the sister's supposed to be older than she is. But he makes a joke that she's going to have a baby in the eighth grade, meaning that she's at least not in the eighth grade. Right, yeah. So, like, seventh grade? But why would Joni be in a fifth? It does not matter. (laughs) She's friends with Samantha. They're on the same dance team. But the other person that Miss Farmer is obsessed with is Patrick Swayze. Jim Cunningham, who is a self-help guru (laughs) who decides that all actions... And all emotions are rooted in two core emotions, either fear or love. And you can fix your life by leaning more towards love than towards fear. Destructive actions are fear-based. Constructive actions are love-based. That conflicts with the destructors, Graham Greene's short story, which Donnie implies, states that everything is creation. Even destruction is creation. They say it right when they flood the house and they tear it to shreds that like uh, destruction is a form of creation so the fact that they burn the money is ironic they just want to see what happens when they tear the world apart and want to change things so that's going to be a concern because donnie will in fact destroy a lot of things so we've introduced a lot of the primary characters at this point donnie will continue to see frank in the middle of the night And eventually he will tell his doctor about him, and she becomes concerned about that. I met a new friend. Real or imaginary? Imaginary. Would you like to talk about this friend? Frank. Frank. What did Frank say? He said to follow him. Follow him? Where? Into the future. And then what happens? Then he said that the world is coming to an end. Do you think the world is coming to an end? No. That's stupid. He will have a lot of problems at school by talking back to Miss Farmer. You're such a fucking bitch. And to Cunningham when he gives a presentation at the school, which I'll is fantastic. I'll tell you what he said. He said to forcibly insert the book into my anus. <laughs> I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise cart into my anus. <coughs> yeah, and he yeah, he talks back to Patrick Swayze at the uh, assembly. Son, it breaks my heart to say this, but I believe you are a very troubled and confused young man. I believe you were searching for the answers in all the wrong places. You're right, actually. I am pretty, I'm, I'm pretty troubled and I'm, I'm pretty confused, but I... And I'm afraid, really, really afraid, really afraid, but I, I, I think you're the fucking Antichrist. I try to think about when I was a kid and what I thought about his actions there. 
And I guess it's just like, well, he, it's hard to remember a time before I knew that he was a child molester. Yeah. Uh-huh. So like knowing he's a child molester, it's Cunningham like, is. yeah, knowing that it's like, well then yeah, fuck him. Like do whatever you want, say whatever you want to him. Right. But before you know that about him, he's just a dude trying to make money. And, like, that's yeah. what Donnie points out. Right. But, like, he's a real dick about it. Totally. <laughs> well, I mean, Donnie is a dick. I want your sister to lose weight, tell her to get off the couch, stop eating Twinkies, and maybe go out for field hockey. That's what everyone basically says about him. He is really, really smart. Even though he's right about everything. Right. His principal says your Iowa test scores are intimidating. Yeah. But... You're an asshole, basically, uh, because you know it's, he's one of those kids that I mean, aside from his emotional problems, right? Uh, it would be hard to be the smartest person. Exactly, in the world. and he he reacts to that by just sort of lashing out because he's bored by everything, effectively. Yeah, and it's hard to conform and stay quiet when you're when you know that the people around you are wrong. But it's like you need to also recognize that society exists right and you can't just be a we live in a society we live in a society yeah uh so a couple of things happen frank tells donnie to flood the school which he does by breaking a water main he also leaves an axe in the head of the mongrel which is really weird it's like a man with a bulldog face which is their mascot i thought they were just the bulldogs no they're the mongrels are they? Yeah, at, on the back of the bus, it says mongrels something or other, and then Cunningham comes in and said, let's go mongrels, or whatever. Good morning, you mongrels. Good morning. Yeah, no, they're the mongrels. But they don't have, like, a sports team, I don't think, so it's kind of an unofficial mascot. Uh, in any case, he does that, uh, but he doesn't get caught for it. He is, however, harassed by the school bully who has a mullet and is friends with Seth Rogen, whose first words in any movie ever are I like your boobs. I like your boobs. <laughs> That's not his first line. It is his first line. He says it before he says, yeah, but didn't your dad like stab your mom? Uh, well, I mean, didn't your dad like stab your mom? He says that second. His first line in any movie ever is I like your boobs. I like your boobs. Donnie gets harassed by these two guys because they think that he said that they did the vandalism. Uh, and they will continue to bother him and Gretchen throughout this movie uh, up until the climax. Also, I want to point out that, like, they show the bully, like, doing coke and stuff at school. And they show the teachers walking by and the teachers seem like they're too stupid to know what's going on. It's just like, no, trust me, we are aware. What would you like us to do about it? Is my question. Like, you want it, like... We know it happens. And when we catch it, we turn, like, we do what we can. Right. They The movie does this sort of Passover visual of, like, the teachers having no clue what's going on. And, yeah, no, they do. <laughs> right. But, but what are they supposed to do about it? Deny Till You Die is like, oh, my God, every kid ever. And they get away with it because of it. Uh, anyway, he also ends up going out with and awkwardly asking... Gretchen to go with him. Well, look, uh, you want to go with me? <laughs> Where do you want to go? I mean, like, go with me, like, you know, like, that's what we call it here. Go in together. Sure. 
And they end up going to the movies to see Evil Dead. She falls asleep and he talks to Frank again. This is where you get the classic line, why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? Why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? Uh, but we do get to see Frank's face, and he is James Duvall, but he has something wrong with his eye. Frank tells him to burn down Cunningham's house, because they're all at the talent show going on at the school. Which he cannot go to because of what he said to Miss Farmer. Yeah. So, while Gretchen is asleep in Evil Dead and everyone else is at the talent show, he burns down Cunningham's house, which reveals... It's a fantastic montage. We'll talk about the music later. Which reveals a kiddie porn stash. Apparently Cunningham was running a child pornography ring. Uh, and he gets into a whole hell of a lot of trouble as a result. Which, by the way, when Dottie Darko dies, no one's ever going to find out about that. I have that written down. I mean, we they do show him kind of, crying, yeah, no, but like, that's not enough. It's not enough. Uh, we will talk about that. Kitty is distressed. Because she believes in Cunningham so much, she thinks he was framed and will mount a legal defense for Claiming him. Claiming a vast conspiracy. Yes. But Sparkle Motion was going to go on Star Search. And now, since she has to defend Jim Cunningham. You can't go. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> now, as their coach, I was the obvious choice to chaperone them on their trip. But, but now you can't go. Yes. Hmm. Says Mary McDonald, who was also in Independence Day, yes, by the she way. Was. <laughs> this is the first lady, um, which I also forget about. Yeah. <laughs> so Rose, Donnie's mom, now has to take the kids to what is it, New York or LA? Something to go on Star Search. This is going to be important later. Donnie also starts conversations with his teachers, a couple important ones. Probably the most important one is the one he has with Noah Wiley, Dr. Monotov, about time travel. Uh, They have a nice, fun conversation about that and whether or not it's possible, whether or not it jives with free will uh, or God's plan or whatever. This is the one line from the film that confuses me. Yeah. Where he says it doesn't conflict with free will if basically, I mean, he doesn't say this literally. Just because our main character says it doesn't mean it's right. But he says, well, not if you stay within God's channel. Every living thing follows along set path. And if you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? Like, uh, that's a form of time travel. Well, you're, you're contradicting yourself, Donnie. If we were able to see our destinies manifest themselves visually, then we would be given a choice to betray our chosen destinies. And the mere fact that this, this choice exists would make all preformed destiny uh come to an end not if you travel within god's channel that being these sort of clear snake things that come out of your chest which basically tell you where you're going to go in the future and there's this big philosophical discussion that stems from this around can you see the future and have free will at the same time noah wiley would argue no and as soon as Donnie says, well, if you follow that, then, yeah, they can go together. The question is, what if you don't? If you don't, then there is no such thing as destiny. Destiny falls apart at that point, 
And if destiny can fall apart, then it's not destiny. Therefore, there's no such thing as destiny. If you could see the future, there would be no such thing as fate. Yes, exactly. And that's when Donnie mentions God and Noah Wiley says, I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation. Why? I could lose my job. Okay. Now, I've heard people say, like, oh, it's dangerous to talk about the topic that Grandma Death was obsessed with and she ended up getting fired from the school and he can't talk about it. I've seen that in conversations about this and it's like no he mentioned god yeah we can't talk he about can't god talk about religion <laughs> teachers who talk about religion at, at a non-religious school I, I mean like you know whatever you're a human being you can do what you want but like you're not supposed to do that right well and at a religious school which i assume it is i don't get the impression that it's religious but even I get the if impression it is that it's just private private but even if it is you know what kind of conversations could he have you know like would he mention that, well, that assumes God exists? Boom, fired. Exactly. You know, so, yeah, obviously he can't continue these conversations. Donnie's sister gets into, I want to say, Harvard. Yeah. Off cycle, apparently, because it's October. But in any case, doesn't matter. She gets accepted, and he suggests they throw a party because their parents are away. I don't know where his dad is, but his mom and sister are Yeah, she said it's a bad it's a bad weekend. He's in New York. So he's in New right. York, she's in LA. Right. And so it's just But like the two of them. She's 19, he's 15. Like you wouldn't think you'd need to worry about it, you know. Right. I mean, they're you know, they're going to have a party. Oh, my parents would have left us of alone. Of course they're going to have a party. Right. So she says, oh, as long as we keep it small or whatever. And they end up having a party there. There are a bunch of clues uh, going on here, including Frank was here, went to get beer or whatever it says on there. That script on the fridge matches the writing in the courtyard around the mongrel. They made me do it. And he's going to see these snaky worm things coming out of people that they're all following, right? Interestingly, Gretchen shows up and there's something going on with her mom. Like, she doesn't know where her mom is. We never get any more of that. That conversation stops right there because Donnie is not interested in her mom or her problems. He knows the world is going to end tonight. So they go to Grandma Death's house to get answers. And while they're there, they find the bullies destroying the place. Kind of like in The Destructors. Mm-hmm. And they get attacked. The bully has a knife now because he's not taking any shit. Well, he has a bigger knife. Yeah, a bigger knife. He had a smaller knife earlier. Seth Rogen ends up throwing Gretchen where she's lying when... In the street. In the street. Well, not in the street, like on the gravel or whatever. When Frank comes by in his car, Grandma Death pops out of nowhere, just like what happened with Donnie and his dad earlier in the movie. He has to swerve to avoid her and ends up running right over Gretchen, killing her. We also have a clown in the car that's played by Fran Kranz. I never knew that. Never. Yeah. We see the bunny, Frank, get out, remove the mask. And yes, in fact, it is James Duvall. Donnie, who found a gun earlier in the movie, shoots him right in the face. And in then the eye. In the eye, yeah, where he had that injury from before. Uh, and he takes Gretchen's dead body with him. He goes home. He kisses his sister. He drives off into the mountains where he sees the vortex. 
And we talk about this earlier in the movie, about what a vortex is. It's how you can travel through space-time in an instant. It's the whole conversation he has with Noah Wiley. Uh, he comes to a conclusion, basically, that the world would be better off without him. And he decides he's going to send the engine from the plane that's going down as they speak back in time, which is what was the inciting incident at the beginning of this movie anyway. Uh, his mom and sister were on that plane and they are going to crash. He uses effectively, I guess, telekinesis, Kyle, and sends that engine through the wormhole back in time, 28 days to land in his room where he is sleeping. He did not sleepwalk in this version of the world. He chooses not he to. He chooses not to. Instead, he laughs in his bed and the engine comes crashing through, killing him. His family is devastated. His mom is smoking a cigarette on the lawn. Gretchen rides up on her bike and talks to this little neighborhood kid, said, what's going on? Who, we've seen the kid before, too. He's been in something. Not on the show, but, like... He was in Seventh Heaven. Oh, he was in Life as a House. Hmm. <laughs> Don't you like that movie, I Kelsey? do really yeah. like uh -huh. that movie. Uh, anyway, he explains to her that this kid named Donnie Darko died... Gretchen has no idea who he is because she hasn't met him yet in this timeline. It's very sad. They wave to Donnie's mom. She waves back. End of movie. Okay. We've got through the plot. What do we want to talk about in this movie, Kelsey? We could go to any topic in any order. I have a bunch of things down here. I'm sure we're not going to get to them all. What do you want to talk about first? So one thing that really stands out about this movie is the score and soundtrack. Uh-huh. It's very good. I think the score is beautiful. It's a beautiful, haunting, uh, simple piano. Uh-huh. I, I just love a good piano music. And the soundtrack is just quintessential 80s music. And it's most songs in their entirety. And I love that. Yeah. So right away at the very beginning of the movie when Donnie is riding his bike home, which, by the way, he does because he set a house on fire, an abandoned house, also kind of like the Destructors, right? Destroying well, he house. did that a long time ago. Right, but that was what sent him to therapy. Yes. That's what means he can't drive until he's 21. So he rides his bike everywhere in this movie, but he rides there to the Killing Moon by who? Echo and the Bunnymen. Echo and the Bunnymen. Get it? The Bunnymen like Frank. Or it's there are just a, lot a of good little, song. I understand. There are a lot of little bunny references throughout the movie, including in the director's cut. They talk explicitly about Watership Down, which is all about bunnies. Mm -hmm. But Echo and the Bunnymen is the, it's the Donnie Darko song as far as I'm concerned. I know it's from the 80s. But the movie takes place in the 80s. We didn't mention that. Yes. Like, I think 87. And not obnoxiously so. Or, no, there 88. 88. There are small references, like Drew Barrymore's character wears shoulder pads. The lead bully has a mullet. Like, stuff like that. But well, it's they not do like, a dance to Notorious. Yes. Well, we'll get to Notorious in a second. But it's not, like, ostentatiously 80s. It's 80s kind of as the 80s were. Yes. But also a little bit cleaned up. Like we've talked about in before. Well, because before. they're going to a private school, they're always yeah. in uh -huh. their uniforms. Right. So, yeah. like, so you that's don't fair, get a great least. sense of what 
the teenagers were wearing. Right. Uh, but anyway, but this is the... there's a Halloween party, so they're in costumes. Fair. This is the song that I associate with Donnie Darko. So, a couple of years ago... I'm going to get into this now, because it's going to be important for later. A couple years ago, I had a fun little contest with my friends. The contest was, you needed to make a playlist of 30 songs that had to be from the 80s. Uh, and basically, your shot at the 30 songs that best represent the 80s, or that are the best songs from the 80s. I had a huge list of finalists, like 100-something, 200 songs or something like that, and I narrowed it down to 30. And this, Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen, was on my final list of 30 songs. And I was like, this is the Donnie Darko song. But of course, love it. Fantastic song. Continuing down the road of fantastic songs in this movie, Kelsey, we get... Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears. One of my absolute favorites. That's two songs on my list. I don't associate the song necessarily with Donnie Darko. I do. I wasn't thinking about it being from Donnie Darko when I put it on my list. Love this song. I knew I wanted a Tears for Fears song, and I decided this is probably my favorite Tears for Fears song. We should also point out that Tears for Fears also did Mad World, which is covered by Gary Jules very famously in this. If there's any song that's the Donnie Darko song, it's that one. Yes, with a beautiful piano yes. to tie it in with the rest of the song. And then eventually became the Gears of War song because it was played in the commercial for the first Gears of War. I remember that ad very and I was effectively. Just like, I don't think anyone knows why they like that song. <laughs> but it was very effective. The last lines of Head Over Heels are funny how time flies. Just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> it's all about time travel. Then, Sparkle Motion dances to Notorious by Duran Duran. Notorious, no. Kelsey, that's three fucking songs from my list of the best songs from the 80s. Uh, I'd like to point out that Notorious is played to a great dance sequence. Yes. That is... Uh, from Sparkle Motion. Yeah, but it is interlaced with scenes of him burning down Yes, Patrick this is Swayze's what's playing when house. he's burning down the house, yeah. And it's just so well done. Uh, the editor of this film... Is excellent. Yeah. Whoever it was. Well, there are two credits. It's Eric Strand and Sam Bauer. Sam Bauer is the one who worked with Kelly to make the director's cut. And they did it very, very quickly. Because it's more more about like adding scenes than anything. But yes, th those were the editors that are credited for this movie. And then there is also Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division. Kelsey, son of a bitch if that's not four songs from my playlist of the best songs of the 80s. Four of them in this fucking movie. Jesus Christ. And a banger the lot. Like, just so good. 
Uh, this is played when Gretchen shows up at the party. I can't think about Love Will Tear Us Apart without thinking of Series 7. Is that what it's from? Yeah. A movie I showed him a long, long time ago. Yes. That was you, shown to me by a friend in high school. If you don't know what Series 7 is, it's basically a play on reality television where in uh, the UK, in the future, they have a reality show where a bunch of people it's try to kill UK. each other. Huh? It's not in the UK. It's not? No, it's right here in America. I could have sworn it was in the UK. Okay, well, whatever. It's, a, it's, it's been a long time since we've seen it. about our obsession with violence reality television and, and reality. Violence. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's basically like Battle Royale, but like in public. So you go about your life. And with adults. Yeah. And everyone else playing the game is trying to kill you. And the last one to survive wins. And two characters uh, fall in love throughout the process. And they constantly play Love Will Tear Us Apart. <laughs> no, they were in love in high school. Oh, that's what it is. And yes. And they have the flashbacks. A, yes. And they made a project <laughs> in high school. They made a high school project with to that song. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's like all I think of now. That's called Series 7. <laughs> uh, but yes, just a stellar soundtrack. Like, really, really good. Uh, it is very, very good. If you are a patron and you're on our Discord, I will share out my playlist if you want to know what I think a definitive list of the best songs of the 80s is. Um, I tried to keep artists with multiple songs to an absolute minimum in order to represent as much as possible. What else, Kelsey, do you want to talk about? I think the family really makes this movie feel real. Yeah, very much so. Obviously, he's working with his sister, so that just brings a whole color of familial... Interaction. Yeah, but I think that the mom and the dad are great uh, because the dad shows you where a lot of Donnie's dark humor comes from. Yeah, snarkiness yeah. comes from. Yeah, it's you know, definitely his dad. Even though his dad isn't doesn't really say. Well, he does sometimes, but only when he's alone. Well, his dad right? is his humor. His mom is his sarcasm. I think. Yes, but like you see where. The mom and the dad have made mistakes. Yeah, for sure. But you see where they're trying to make up for those mistakes. Well, and trying to treat their children as individuals who have their own points of view. And voting for Dukakis. Yes, they, this there's year. that whole conversation where it's like, do you really think Dukakis, that Dukakis is going yeah. <laughs> to take half your husband's paycheck? My husband's paycheck. Mm-hmm. And like the way they react to their sister, they don't know Samantha. Like it just feels. <laughs> Very real, and... Why don't you go suck a fuck? <laughs> tell me, how does one suck, suck a, a fuck? fuck? I'm all ears. <laughs> you want to tell mom and dad why you stopped taking your medication? You're such a fuck-ass. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Did you just call me a fuck-ass? Elizabeth, that's enough. You can go suck a fuck. Oh, please tell me, Elizabeth, how exactly does one suck a fuck? <laughs> you want me to tell you? Please tell me. We will not have this <laughs> at the dinner table. Stop. It's a great sequence, and they do an excellent job. It feels real. And they do feel like, you know, middle America, middle suburban America, middle class family who tries to do their best, but maybe, you know, they're not 
very worldly and not very intelligent, even though his parents try to be, they are stuck in a very close-minded society. And that really stifles Donnie's growth. Right. Speaking of growth, I'm pretty sure he reads the book, then sees the blobs. I'm pretty sure. Which contributes to the schizophrenia argument. Or it could just be that he's learning more and then is capable of seeing more. But that can't be true. Well, maybe that's that's more likely because he doesn't want to follow the thing first and the and it like tells him, Come on, follow me. And it shows him the the gun. And I yeah, think right there, uh-huh. that's that's the film telling you this is real. Right. For sure. Because why else would Donnie have gone into his father's closet and looked under that blanket? Apparently, this is all because of John Madden. John Madden, famous NFL football coach turned commentator. He would famously draw on what they called the telestrator, where, you know, you could pause, do slow motion, and then, like, draw on the screen. And that's, he would represent, like, where players were going to go. That's what influenced Richard Kelly to have the guide telling them where they're going to go, coming out from their center of gravity. And that's also probably why they're watching a football game when he first sees it. These water elements um, are the bread and butter of the supernatural element of this film, kind of the visual element of this film. And, and you know, I'm really pretty happy with you know, the way we amalgamated pixels, put this all together and um, we worked really hard and we had no money and, um, you know, you can talk about the water tentacle and, and the abyss, and ironically, that was generated in 1988. Uh, that effect, but um, it's you know a predestination. It, it brings up ideas of manipulation and 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 uh, time, and and are we being manipulated? Are we are the choices we make are they our own, or are they the choices of you know our subconscious? I don't I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> It, it freaks me out, man. I, I, I don't know what I was thinking when I came up with that idea, but it just stuck with well, me. You were saying to me when you when you first saw it, when you, when you first uh, wrote it, that you had been watching uh, John Madden football and that there were arrows you know, yeah, from the players yeah. that showed you yeah. where you were going. And that, that was it, I think. The initial idea came from from that, from how each, each one of the players... Sort of CBS played. chalkboard. So uh, we learn more in the director's cut that basically the world is going to end... Unless Donnie can collapse this tangent universe. Because he tells him the world's going to end. He means his world. He means his life. I'm talking about the director's cut. Again, these are the right answers that we really don't care about, but I want to at least explain it. Okay. What we find out when we see more content of the book and stuff is that there are all these tangent universes that crop up and collapse all the time. But... If left out of control, they can destroy everything. And the world will literally end, not Donnie's world, the whole world, the whole universe will end unless Donnie can collapse this tangent universe. He is the selected individual. There's like a term specifically that refers to the person who has been identified as like, they're like the arbiter of time. I I forget what the term is. Like a sentinel? Basically, yeah. And it's their job. Yes. uh Uh-huh. It's their job to get the artifact back to where it needs to be. And the artifact is the jet engine that ends up killing him uh, in order to right the universe. And so in the right universe, 
and the correct one that can continue on without collapsing everything is the one where Donnie dies. Now, the problem is the only reason he didn't die is because Frank called him out. If Frank had just not called him out, this tangent universe never would have been created. Donnie would have died and never would have learned anything. He would have died anyway. So, like, what's the point? How would that Frank, who got shot in the face and then traveled through time, how would that Frank even do that if there's never first a universe where Donnie survived? Because Frank had to go back in time to get him out of the house. That's... It's a problem like with time That's travel. how you read that. That's not how I read that. I never thought they meant the entire world. I always thought they meant no. His I'm world, telling you when life. they when the in the director's cut again. I'm talking about the director's cut. This is the intention of the author. Also, we've had this conversation before. Authorial intent is not everything, but the intention of the author when they when you see the text of the book, they specifically say that like the universe will fucking end. <laughs> Unless this tangent universe can be collapsed, which is what he's doing by him being the chosen one gets the artifact to where it needs to be. But we cut all of that out and it adds a vagueness to the movie and the theatrical cut, which is a lot more satisfying just to let wash over you and accept as opposed to trying to figure out the right answer. It's like, yeah, it might be fun, but like at the end, what are you left with? You know, I don't know. I, of course, love the style of this film. Yeah. I think it's beautifully shot. I think everything is very subtle and muted, and I really like that about it. Yeah. I think this is a quiet movie with with so much to say. Well, I think it's about people and emotions, which is why I think the director's cut sort of undercuts the point of the movie by making it about the science and less about because oh yeah, a lot of the stuff they talk about are are based in real foundational like science and and scientific theory, but it sets up a scenario where now we're talking about the time travel and portals and shit like that, and we're not talking about the people and the emotions that are really what the story is all about. Right. Uh, we haven't even talked about Charita Chen. Oh yeah. This wow, you're right. We haven't. Girl who is everything that is good? Yeah, she she's this larger Asian girl and this only white suburban American. Uh-huh. And everyone town. teases her everyone for her teases speech her impediment. Well, the only person who is kind to her is Donnie Darko, so of course she has a crush on him. He's Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Of course she has a crush on him. Uh, but so... Eventually he reaches out to her and tells her basically, one day everything will be great for you. And she panics and freaks out. And she drops her books and he sees that on her you know, brown paper book cover, she wrote Donnie Darko on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously she really, really likes him. He he walks through the latter part of the movie wearing her earmuffs, which is the sort of represent... I've heard this said too. I didn't come up with this. It's sort of the representation of goodness that she represents. You know, when she does her interpretive dance mm-hmm. at the talent show and she's angelic Mm -hmm. she is everything good and then he takes on that element and he decides to do something good because before he meets gretchen he doesn't love anything 
That's not true. Well, he loves his family insofar as, you know, people just love their family. He doesn't care. And then he falls in love with Gretchen. And she sort of activates that in him. It's not until after that that he goes home and he kisses his sister before he ends up taking his own life. Mm-hmm. And deciding that it's better if he's not there for everyone else. Right? Making the sacrifice. But also, he is very much not a martyr. We've talked about how selfish this is. Uh, especially insofar as Jim Cunningham gets away well, it's not selfish when you find out that the whole world is going to end if he doesn't right. do it. Exactly. But, I mean, yeah, Jim Cunningham. But, again, that's the director's cut. It takes away from the nuance when there is a definitive, appropriate thing for him to do. Right. And, of course, he would do it. In this version, it's like, if you die, no one will know that he's into kitty porn. Right. Mm-hmm. If you die... Your mother will never get her cup come up and against Miss Farmer. And I hate that Miss Farmer. If you die, your mom and your daughter live. Sorry, your, your mom, mom and your, your little sister, sister live. Live, yeah. And but here's the problem: it's also set up in a way to make you think if he dies, then Gretchen lives, and it's like no. Uh, if it weren't for him, she would have never been anywhere near that house. And then you say, well, then yeah, then it's a good thing he's dead. No. All he has to do is just not, not take go her. to Roberta Sparrow's house that night. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, to save her. But that's the point. He's not doing the thing that will save her. He's doing the thing that saves everyone. And she sort of activates that goodness in him, hence him wearing the, the earmuffs at the end of the movie. But in essence, it, it's kind of counter to what... I guess this is, if you want to get Kelsey with vagaries, this is how to do it. Do it with style. Be a little mall gothy. <laughs> uh, because Kelsey hates open-ended movies. She hates them. She wants definitive answers. And the director's cut is exactly that. She hates the director's cut. Because it treats me like I'm stupid. But apparently yeah. <laughs> I didn't understand what I was saying anyway. So apparently uh-huh. I am stupid. Also, everyone who's in a position of authority... Well, I guess not everyone. Well, no, yeah, everyone who's in a position of authority, which is not to say, like, teachers over students, but I mean, like, they have control in this society here, in this community, are terrible people. Is that true? Yes. Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore has no control. She is fired in this movie. She has control carried out upon her. But no, Wiley. He doesn't have – I'm saying the teachers over students is not what I mean when I say control in this culture. Uh Oh. I mean the principle. I mean the social control of Miss Farmer. Such a fucking bitch. I mean – I want to know why pornography is being taught in our curriculum. Jim Cunningham, all of them who are supposed to represent the ostensive good are all corrupt – or broken that in some man. way. She's such a bitch. <laughs> Seriously, she knows like every fucking line of this movie. <laughs> Excuse me, you need to go back to grad school. Cellar door. I remember thinking, well, that's a little pretentious. <laughs> but I think the movie overestimates or sort of misunderstands the importance of cellar door. It says it's the most beautiful. Some linguist said it was the most beautiful two words in the English language. What's cellar door? 
This famous linguist once said that of all the phrases in the English language, of all the endless combinations of words in all of history, that cellar door is the most beautiful. Like, no, it's not it. Probably most famously, but not first, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, in the 50s said that um, it was basically an example of something that's called phonesthetics, basically aesthetically pleasing sounds that words create. And that cellar door is an example of that. Not that it is the ultimate version of it, but just that it is an example of it. And J.R.R. Tolkien is or was a, a linguist. famous linguist. He's a famous linguist, yes. But there are a lot of other people that have commented on that. H.L. Mencken, 1903 G-Boy by Shakespeare scholar Cyrus Lauren Hooper is the first person to mention cellar door as being an example of phonesthetics. So it goes back quite a ways. But yes, they are being a little bit like they're overselling the concept a little bit. But that does also play into later on. That's how they get into Grandma Death's house is through her cellar door. Ba-dum. There's a voiceover at the end, which I felt was really unnecessary. It kind of feels like, you know, the voiceover in the theatrical cut of um, Blade Runner felt really unnecessary. And the mo- little montage at the Sparrow? end. That's the letter he's writing to Roberta Sparrow at the end. I know, but the fact that it's a voiceover over the montage is, I don't know. Everyone's like getting up and, oh, they're feeling something. That's when you listen to. He's dying. That's when you listen to. Mad World. Mad World. Yes. Then I'm not thinking of the same thing. He's sitting in his car with the body of Gretchen and he there's a voiceover. Then that's after Gary Jules. No, because Gary Jules happens when he dies and he hasn't died yet. Oh, oh, then this is before that. I get yeah, it. Okay, uh-huh. yeah. So before they, but that's before they do their montage of them right. crying. Yeah, so, but anyway, those two things I have written down as being, what is it? Yeah, the voiceover and flashbacks are too much is what I have written here. I guess flash forwards, flash sideways. They did it before Lost. I, <laughs> I see, but I think that this started a lot of things. There is a scene in Skins where everyone stops and sings. Yeah, but that's intentionally ridiculous. I over melodramatic. But and, I feel like they're going for the same effect. I, I feel like they're supposed to going be a little for, bit humorous in that. I didn't get that they were being humorous. He's lying. They're almost dying. Yeah, it's ironic. I don't think he's being funny. The irony in this movie is mentioned when they talk about the destructors. He mentions about how burning the money is is ironic. But it's ridiculous that in this really dramatic moment we have everyone it's a it's the show is suddenly a fucking musical. I think a lot of shows stole that right no, after. No, shows but show, shows did musical numbers and it was a fun funny thing. Even in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and stuff which I think was before Skins by the way. Oh, way before. Yeah. Yes, but that was a joke. Right, that's my they, point. <laughs> they couldn't stop singing. This is not the same thing. This right, is but- too this is too evoke an emotion without dialogue but shows that are not musicals suddenly becoming musicals is inherently absurd and i think the that the show that is a dramatic comedy it's absolutely a drama first but it it conveys drama through humor we're talking about skins now 
Like, I think that was just another representation of that. This is not supposed to be humorous. The melodrama is, it's sincere. So I don't think it's supposed to be funny. I didn't think it was either. And, but my bigger issue is you're showing us that, yes, in the middle of the night, Miss Farmer feels bad. In the middle of the night, Jim Cunningham feels Jim Cunningham bad. Fuck that feels guy. bad, but it's like, they're not going to change who they are. Yeah. You're not showing us that they change their actions in the future. Uh-huh. Well, see, that's the thing. That is, we see that when he dies, implying that that's going on in the correct version of the universe, not the tangent that the whole movie takes place in. We rewound time back to the correct version where Donnie dies. And Donnie dies, and it has a ripple effect to everyone that he would have met in that tangent universe. And what does that mean? Why is everyone suddenly up that night and feeling strong emotions that night? They wouldn't know what happened in that tangent universe is the movie saying that somehow they feel it anyway. When that version of, when that tangent universe collapses, are there reverberations throughout the correct one? Like in The Giver. Is that what happens in The Giver? And they get all the memories. I I don't know. I've never read the whole thing. So, I mean, that's, kind of all I have to say about the movie. I just think this movie is outstanding. I think the direction is awesome. I think Mm -hmm. the acting is super well done and super realistic. There's a reason Jake Gyllenhaal became a huge star. Right. After doing things like Bubble Boy. (laughs) Right. Can can you pinpoint bad moments? Sure. Yes. Are all of these people newcomers? Most of them, yes. But... I thought that they were putting together a really good, different, unique film. And I thought, mm. and it was, I saw it at the perfect age, at the perfect time. And of course, it helps that Jake Gyllenhaal's gorgeous, yes. Yeah. And it it helps, yes, that like Chris said, it goes to my weird sensibilities. But mm-hmm. like, if you are not like that, then you're probably not going to like this movie. I heard... I think it was the the Screen Junkies guys on their honest trailer commentary for Donnie Darko. <laughs> they made a joke about how, you know how like there's the there's the line about how inside of you there are two wolves or whatever. <laughs> uh in this it's inside of you there are three dorm rooms. One of which has a Donnie Darko poster, another has a Fight Club poster, <laughs> and another has a Boondock Saints poster. <laughs> And that's that's what this movie was. Okay, so I had yes, a Fight Club poster, Fight Club a Donnie poster. Darko poster. I had a Donnie Darko T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Oh, T-shirt! Yeah, you brought that out. Although I also had a Fight Club T-shirt. But, but the, these I are like your favorite I movies. Owned anything of Boondock Saints? I don't well, think I was no, ever I mean, that big of a fan. I right. liked it. I definitely. Well, when liked it came out, it. it was huge, and I think there has rightly been a lot of like sort of eye rolly backlash over Boondock Saints, <laughs> as well there should be. You you might still be able to appreciate it for what it was or for how absurd and stupid it is, but you can't take it seriously in today's day and age. Like it, like people definitely did when it came out. It was the coolest fucking thing for all the black trench coat wearing Columbine wannabes. You know what I mean? Jesus. <laughs> you look like you're about to tell your friend not to go to school tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Which was definitely, like, the culture I was in at the time. I was very much, 
one of my best friends was actually suspended for wearing a black trench coat to school after Columbine. Like, it was this whole thing. But that's the type of people that were targeted by this sort of stuff. I got told at my private Catholic high school that I couldn't have all my buttons on my backpack. (laughs) That was what made me a badass in high school. I was in shock when she told me. I was like, are you serious? It's too individualistic. I guess. You're not supposed to be an individual when you're in private Catholic high schools. I'll never forget a really popular boy turned to me one time. He had one in his hand. He's like, I saw this. I thought... You like buttons. Probably the only interaction I ever had with him. And like, I was just like, thank you. (laughs) And he was thinking about you when he wasn't with you. Mm -hmm. And you could have made it happen, Kelsey. Why didn't you close the deal? I wasn't interested, but it was just, it was very strange. I've definitely had moments like that in high school. Uh, Anyway, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I think I know. Yeah. Is it 84? It's 87, actually. Oh. Richard Kelly's debut feature, Donnie Darko, is a daring original vision, packed with jarring ideas and intelligence, and featuring a remarkable performance from Jake Gyllenhaal as the troubled title character. It has a 71 on Metacritic out of 21 reviews, including uh, four mixed and one negative. That one negative is a 38 from Michael Wilmington at the Chicago Tribune. Quote, just another self-absorbed teen chronicle with the added twist of a little time travel and a surprise ending. Should point out that although this version has a 71, the director's cut has an 88 with 15 reviews, all of which were positive. Disagree. It has no cinema score. Like, I can't even imagine that looking at this and being like, it's just another stupid teen movie. Like, fucking Oh, I really? absolutely can. Are you kidding me? Sure. You're missing a lot. No, I get why people might think it's just, but I mean, that's the same way they sort of dismiss Fight Club. Because a lot of what Fight Club represents, wrongly, a lot of what people wrongly assume it represents are what people see when they think about Fight Club. They, they think about the people that are like... Oh, yeah, Tyler Durden. It's like, okay, you obviously didn't get the movie. (laughs) You know, so there's like two, inside every person are two Fight Club fans. The people who like Tyler Durden and the people who actually understood the movie. (laughs) But, you know, you have that same sort of thing with Donnie Darko, where it's just like the, oh, it's the angsty teen bullshit, mall goth shit, you know. It's the Hot Topic vibes. Or it's just like a really good effective piece of independent storytelling which it is both of the movies we watched today are indie movies this was made for a couple million dollars our next movie was made for much less <laughs> so kelsey do you think 87 is underrated or overrated i'm gonna say underrated yeah but by how much i'm gonna give it a 93 93. I don't know why. I thought you would go higher than that. It does have problems. And any movie about time travel is going to. You cannot escape that, but I'm also not going to ignore it. But again, we're not interested in um actuallys here. Right. But, like, you can't deny that there are questions that pop up throughout the film and you're just like, meh. And you just try to... Maybe we should just not think about that. Weep it under the rug, you know? (laughs) Um... 
Again, is everyone kind of new to the scene here? A lot of, or are a lot of the people new here? Yes. Jake had, had already been in October Sky? Yes. October Sky was 99. Bubble Boy was the same year, actually. Um, his first movie, of course, being City Slickers. <laughs> right. As a child. So he had already been in October Sky. So, like, he had already been in a big budget film. And you could argue that that was being carried on his shoulders. But it felt like there were more things going on in that movie. This feels very much a character study. Yes. And if he couldn't keep it together, it would have fallen apart. Yeah, he carried the movie emotionally, Mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, Because this is a movie, again, about characters and emotions. It is not about science. And that is a lot for a young actor to do. And I think that he... While occasionally maybe they could have done it a little bit better, I think that he does a very admirable job. When the family is together, it just feels so natural. It's, you know, it's one of my favorite things about Poltergeist is how natural they feel together. That is here. Whatever Mm -hmm. you have to do with your actors to make them seem like they have known each other their entire lives, you've got to take that time to do it. You know, if you want people to buy into your family. Yeah. And I think that, like I said, it's heavily stylized to a very distinct level, and I like that about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the second time we've had Jake Gyllenhaal on this show. He was in Zodiac. And he was excellent in Zodiac. And both of them. Very good. Uh, I think I'm going to give it an 89. I don't think this quite reaches my 90s, but it is like... Right fucking there. This is a great movie, I would say. But, you know, like you say, it's not it's not perfect. And it does lay on some things, you know, it is a little bit like, okay, movie <laughs> sometimes. But it is a lot of fun, and it's also very nostalgic. Yeah, I'll give it an 89. And the way they... Love this movie. The way they treat Charita feels real. And the way... That they treat these, the dancers feels real. The way they treat Uh the teacher, Drew Barrymore, is very real. I am sorry you failed. (laughs) Devastating. (laughs) That's what the principal tells her when he fires her. She goes out and yells, And then Charita's there. Yeah. Because no one notices when she's there. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, that is Donnie Darko. So, great movie, and you should have watched it if you didn't. <laughs> yes. Glad to get one of these out. This isn't even our birthday week, and this is probably one of those movies that Kelsey would choose on her birthday week. Uh, so, thank you to our patrons. We haven't mentioned yet that the reason we watch these movies is because this was a runner-up on a Patron's Choice Week from earlier, and we wanted to make sure we got to it. Patrons like Matt Morin, William Linville, Jeremy Haig, Stacey Nye, Greg Soto, David Mezzacappa, The Chickapedia, Jeffrey Crevier, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, and MGS7785. Thank you guys very, very much. As a reminder, we put up a lot of extra content over there, and we also do some little informal surveys to see what movies we should cover next, and that's why we're doing this. I'm so glad you guys picked these as your second as, as these were runners up because I yeah, love uh-huh. both these movies. Both these movies, absolutely, uh, and it's remarkable just how similar they are in so so many ways. <laughs> so let's get to it right now. 2013's Coherence, written and directed by James Ward Burkett, uh, with a story by Alex Manusian, 
starring Emily Baldoni, Maury Sterling, and Nicholas Brendan. James Ward Burkett wrote Rango, which I remember liking. You really liked it. Because it was like a Western. I thought it was dumb myself. Yeah. He also wrote and directed the Rango video game, weirdly. Uh, This movie, like I mentioned, uh, was also an independent mind bender uh, involving alternate dimensions. Yep. When I say independent, though, I mean very, very independent. It was made for roughly $50,000. And yet it has the guy from Buffy. Like five (laughs) figures. It does. It has Xander. (laughs) Nicholas Brendan. Uh, And it was shot in Burkett's house with his wife, who was originally going to be Lee, but then she got pregnant, couldn't be in the movie anymore. So they replaced Lee. Kelsey, what is Coherence about? A group of adults are together. Adult friends. (laughs) Are together for a evening of, you know, food and wine. And it just happens to be on the night of a comet passing. Although it does not seem like that was part of their plan. No, it wasn't like, let's have a comet party. Right. Just was just happened to be the case. Right. Unexpected things happen as a result of this comet. And it gets confusing. Yes. The movie is available with a subscription to Prime, Fubo, AMC Plus, Canopy, and Shudder. You can watch it with ads on Tubi, Popcorn Flicks, and Pluto TV. You can rent it for $3.00. Or $4 on Apple for some reason. But Redemption, you can buy it for only $8 on Apple, uh, Amazon, and Vudu. And $10 on Google Play, YouTube, and Microsoft. Kelsey, should people watch Coherence? Yes. Why? I agree, but why? I am so impressed with these actors. Again, it feels real. It's a mind bender. You're constantly questioning what's going on. Who's who? What's happening? Uh, and I think that it is a paranoia builder. Well done. I would say, uh, I guess either way, if you liked Primer or and or you thought it relied too heavily on the science end of it and not like the basic logic stuff, this is a lot easier to comprehend than what's going on in Primer. But it has that same vibe of like an uh, an independent movie that's just really smart and fun and compelling. And it's a small, small movie. And yeah, you rarely leave a house. Everyone, you go out on the street a just couple a couple times. times yeah. Uh, everyone does a really fantastic job. And it's very believable because like Blair Witch Project, they weren't given scripts. Instead... They were given single paragraphs. Yes, but unlike Blair Witch Project, these people had a bigger vocabulary and yeah, uh-huh. have different ways of saying the same right. thing instead of simply well, and they repeating were, themselves they were over told, and over again. They were told a lot more and they had direct interaction. Uh, as a matter of fact, I mentioned the stories by Alex Mnugin, which I think is how you pronounce it. He you know plays. Where the map is, Chris? <laughs> yes, I know have what you a map seen is. The map? Do you know where the map is? Yes, but they had one of the writers there. He plays Amir. And he is there to sort of guide them along and provide additional exposition. And they would interrupt the story when necessary. At one point, they need to open up a lockbox. One of the characters has the ability to pick that lock. The other characters don't know that. And so one of them is about to smash the box. And they had to yell cut because that was literally the only lockbox they had. And so... 
Burkett had to stop him and go, oh, wait, 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 don't do that. So, like, they did have direct intervention when necessary, and they weren't left out in the middle of the woods. And honestly, I think that made for a more compelling experience. Yeah, I mean, this movie, when you find that out, it's like, so this was like a murder mystery party. It, it, that's exactly what it is. It is, I have written down, like, filming a murder mystery dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but Which, if you've never done game-like. those guys, they are so much fun. They're a lot of fun if you can get really, really into them. But yes. there is that sort of game element where everyone's like, <laughs> but what if everyone really bought into their roles? Right. And, I mean, yeah, like, you can't do it with people who aren't going to fucking try. Right, yeah. Fuck those people. Ruin it for everybody. But, yes, we both think that you should definitely watch Coherence. It is a very fun little movie. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2013's Coherence. Amir is bringing Laurie to dinner. Amir is a total jackass. (laughs) Everyone will still not have service. I got zero. On the news, you know, they're talking about the comet. Yeah, yeah. Wheeler's comet. After it passed, people get lost. They would end up in the wrong home. And they keep telling people that this can happen. The chicken tastes like tuna. It must be Miller's comet. (laughs) The whole neighborhood is out of power, uh, except for a house about two blocks up. Mike, is that door locked? I'll check check it. Stay away from the door. I can't stay this. I'm going to go see what's going on. I'm sorry, but I'm going. See that? Oh, my God. What the hell happened? Oh my God. Where are you, okay? What's the box? That was at the other house. Oh my, oh my God. God. Baby, what did you see? Hugh, what, did, what you did you see? Do you guys know what Schrodinger's cat is? We don't even belong here. Everybody knew about we this. Thought he you told knew. us. Thought you he knew. told we us. Everybody knew about you. this except me. We have to just get through the night, okay? We are not from this house. We are visitors. I'm crossing all kinds of boundaries. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does coherence begin? With our main character, M, played by Emily Baldoni, on the phone with her boyfriend. That's Kevin, played by Maury Sterling. And you can just automatically tell they're not in the best place. Like, relationship-wise. Yes. Something is going on that has put them on edge. Not upset, not angry, not sad. There's just something that's not quite right with the two of them. Yeah, he says he needs to talk to her about something important, but won't do it over the phone. And her phone cracks. Yep, just kind of shatters in her hand. Which she is going to try and bring up several times at dinner I was like, she, did you drop it? <laughs> because she watched a special on television telling her that that kind of stuff might be possible when a, when a comet comes by this close to the Earth. Right. It's it's what, in this case, it's Miller's Comet. That's the what's going to be the driving force of the entire movie. Which everyone, like, tries to make jokes about, squash, not talk about. So we meet... Our characters. Let's talk about who each person is and, like, what their driving character force is going to be. Because, like we said, this is very much like a murder mystery party. Yes. They were given, like, ideas about who their character was, and then they just got to build from that. And as an actor, 
I think that that is a very fun activity to do. So, okay, so we have our first two characters that we already mentioned. There's M, who is our main character. We will meet all these characters and have various exposure to them, but our main character is M, and her boyfriend is Kevin. Kevin is a successful They're all journalist. just mildly successful. Yeah, I don't uh-huh. know what most of them do. Right. You don't really need to know. But what we need to know about Kevin is that he used to date a chick named... Lori. And Lori used to be really looked down upon by the rest of the group as being a little slutty. Did Amir mention to you that he's bringing Lori to dinner? He's bringing Lori? Yeah. The Lori? Um, That's not... No, I didn't know that. I what? didn't know With that. Lori? Well, he is. Oh, you know Lori. Oh, my Long black hair, kind of in a vixen-y, wild, kind of sexy. Oh. Kind of strange, I'm... very mysterious. Very tight, tight, tight dresses. Listen, <clears throat> it's totally fine. Okay, look. It's such an Amir thing this, to do. Gonna... Yeah. She mentions that she's aged out of that, but she is still Kevin's ex-girlfriend. To the point where she even denies some of the things of her past. Uh, At one point, someone will bring up the fact that she used to teach yoga, and she will flat out deny it, pretend like he's an asshole. And I think that might be why later she pretends not to know who he is from Roswell. Oh, you think she's pretending? I think that's a possibility. Okay, well, let's talk about her hosts a little bit here. There's, There's Lee and Mike. Mike is Xander. Lee is the character that was originally going to be played by the director's wife. They're in their house, by the way. Um, they have a very nice house. And, what, well, what it was is, it, it's not like very nice like something you might see on Selling Sunset. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> we were just watching Selling Sunset. I don't the even OC. consider that, like, that's not real. Like, right. that, that, is, that is a level of person that I don't know that I want to know those right. people. But, okay, so... It's it's Lee and Mike's house. They moved there a while ago, even though it's away from Hollywood, which is where Mike would normally work because he's an actor. And if would you would would I know you from anything? Yes, he was in Roswell. He was a main character in Roswell. The thing which is, he wasn't in real life. He was not in, in Roswell, which is very confusing for those of us who just <laughs> vaguely know that he was on a TV show. Because I was like, "Oh, he was on Roswell." And Chris was like, "No, it no, wasn't. Roswell was a real show. He was not in it. There was no character even named Joe, which is what they say his character's name was. This is perhaps a stand-in for being on Buffy. I keep calling him Xander. That was his name in Buffy. Although Buffy did run a little bit longer than. Roswell did. Now, see, there are those of us who exist who very much knew that these were two popular shows, never watched either of them. Yeah. So you can understand why I am aware that this person was an actor in the 90s. I am aware that he was on a TV show. And if you say he's on Roswell, I was just like, oh, okay, you are on Roswell. I believe it. Right. (laughs) But he's not anymore. And there's some sort of mystery around why he doesn't really act anymore. Well, no, it's because his wife took the job of the head of Skype, which forced them to move to this house in the middle of nowhere. But also he stopped finding jobs, I think, because of his alcoholism. Yes. And so they use that as kind of a cover 
for why, oh, I'm not acting anymore because my wife is really successful and we were forced to move. Are you still teaching the, um, the yoga, the Spanish yoga, the spoga? No, not me. Pretty yeah, sure that no. wasn't, oh, then that must have been another girl. That Kevin dated that Amir wow. is hooking let's, up. Let's with. give him a shovel. Give him a shovel. Wow. Um, what are you doing? What do you do for a living? I act. <laughs> Shut up, guys. I, do. I didn't know you were. I don't That's remember you an actor. So you do mainly theater, or? I did. I mean, since I've moved down here to support my my wife and her Skype ing <laughs> career. Um, but no, I was I was in a TV show. For about four years. Yeah, what was that? It was called Roswell. My God, I love Roswell. Hey, I was. When were you on Roswell? What what episodes were you on? I was on all shows really? produced. <laughs> I was on everything. I was a series regular on that show. Yeah, he was like the main guy. What character did you play? Joe. Joe. Did you have? Yeah. Did you have different hair? Or I had something? the same exact hair. I'm sorry. Maybe it's just one of those things where you you know the character for so long and then you <clears throat> see someone in person and it just doesn't compute. I don't. Yeah. Know. Which is interesting because the whole fucking point of Skype for those of you that are too young, Skype is the Urzoom. Too young. Uh, <laughs> it was just a couple of years ago. I understand. But what I'm saying is everyone knows Zoom and everyone talks about Zoom. Teleconferencing was around a lot longer than that. I think it was Microsoft that bought Skype eventually. So their service is, is effectively based around Skype. I might be wrong. But yeah, everyone would say, would use the word Skype as a verb, like Google, like how we use Zoom now. So it's a big deal. They have this house in this different city. There's also Hugo and Beth. These are the older couple. Beth is a little hippy-dippy. She ends up bringing drugs to this party, and not just any drugs, fucking ketamine. And I love, I love how she describes what's in it. She's like, there's rose petals, and this, that, and the other thing, and a little bit of ketamine. It's echinacea and passion flower, a little valerian, and ketamine. So it's all natural. Ketamine. The that doesn't sound drug? natural at all. And that's a horse tranquilizer. Yeah, but it's just like a whisper. I did that once. You know, I just thought maybe are celebration. You, are you offering this comment? to me? Because well, Lori is coming but, here? Well, I'm just saying. Thank she you. loves no, it. Ketamine or cheese. It's a big deal, but it's right. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like, oh my God, that's a horse tranquilizer. That's a huge deal. She's like, it's just a couple drops mixed in, it's diluted down. It's ketamine light. It's, yeah. it's like the, the way that she tries to downplay it, it's like, no, that is the only drug in that vial. That is right. what's fucking with people. And Hugh is kind of important here because he's like a dignified guy. He has a brother who he will mention throughout the movie who everyone refers to as kind of an expert. And when they ask, like, why is he an expert? Like, is he a, a, a doctor or something? What's wrong with your brother? Nothing. He's fine. He just, um, you know, Brian. He hangs out with all those, you know, theoretical physicists and all. Yeah. Is his brother like a scientist? Or he's just something? a really trippy guy. He's really, really smart, real egghead, but it's hard to, it's like he thinks uh, out loud. You know, he's a teacher at UCSC. These are his, what do you got here? This is, uh, this is, these are Brian's notes from his, his lesson plan for his, his class. And then there are Amir and Lori. Apparently their friend Amir is now dating Mike's ex-girlfriend, Lori. Which she has done in the past, so that is not surprising. Right, Amir's just that friend. And as a reminder, Amir is Alex Manujan, the co-writer of the movie. Throughout the party, we're going to figure out what it was that her boyfriend, Kevin, wanted to talk to her about. He gets an assignment in Cambodia 
and he's oh, going to be Vietnam. No, I think he's been to Vietnam before. And now he's going to Cambodia. I might be wrong. It might be the other way around. But okay. the point is, it's in a foreign country, and it's going to be for four months. And he needs an answer as to whether or not M is coming with him tonight. He's going to be gone for four months, and the question is whether or not she goes with him. And she's like, that's a very long time. I can't just make that decision tonight. And then he's like, well, what if we just start out with a month? And you could just stay for a month. And she's like, a month is still a very long time. The important part is that he's going somewhere well, for his career, and she might not be coming with him. There's that great line that he says of, you know, well, if I, she, she says something like, I don't want to say no. And he's like, well, if you don't give me an answer, it becomes a no. Babe, if you don't say yes, it becomes a no. They bring up later that she's bad at making decisions. She sat on the decision to figure out if she was going to be the understudy for this ballet. And because she didn't make a decision, they replaced her. And then that understudy replacement for her ended up becoming the national... The actual uh, prima ballerina. Prima ballerina of the dance because the other lady pulled out at the last and second. And it's something that she made. Like, this was her role. And then they got some great, incredible dancer to play it. And she was so pissed off that they replaced her in her show that she refused to be the understudy. And yeah, and then the uh, the understudy they did hire ended up becoming the actual prima ballerina because the famous one had to drop out. And so she didn't even get to participate at all. So the idea being that she's just really bad at making decisions and takes yeah. her time. And they, they do kind of seed the idea of this understudy has your life. I know Lori says, because she's so insensitive, uh, Lori says basically, oh, I know that woman's name. She's like the only dancer I do know of. Oh, my God. She has your life. As soon as you said that, I thought Catherine Maris, that's like pretty much the only person in dance I know. Right. Well, um, so she basically well, stole so your your whole thing. Catherine <clears throat> Maris has your life, basically. You could be living her life right now. I don't know that I would call it insensitive. I think this is all very much on purpose. Uh, Lori has come to this party with the intention of getting Kevin back. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's dating Amir just to, so she can stay close to Kevin and maybe get him back. Absolutely. She's using Amir in that way. I think, though, honestly, she's not like, oh, man, if I say this, this will fuck her up. Oh, I think she is. No, I think it's she thinks it because she doesn't care about thinking thoughts that are insensitive to this woman who's dating Kevin. And then she just says it out loud. I think she does actually this does occur to her and and it doesn't occur to her that she might be sensitive to this woman's point of view because she doesn't care about that woman. I tend to believe that most cruel and biting things that people say uh-huh. that seem unintentional are very much intentional. Yeah, I'm, I'm the other way. I think you can be cruel and biting without being like, I'm going to be cruel and biting. I think you just say things not because you want to be cruel and biting, but because you don't care about the other person. Well, at dinner, the cell phone service is going to go out. What about Wi-Fi? The Wi-Fi goes out. Never addressed. They never talk about Wi-Fi. They say it once. Do they? Yeah, at one point. Because I wrote down, what about (laughs) Wi-Fi? No, they talk about that. No internet. No? On the computer. How is it no internet? You run Skype. You tell us how to run Skype. But so that spurs Hugh because Hugh wants to stay in contact with his brother. 
because his brother has been acting strangely, saying that weird things could possibly yeah, happen. Yeah, if anything weird starts happening, do whatever you can to get a hold of me. Nothing, nothing uh, to get upset about. He just said to give him a call, um, you know, if there was anything weird going on. Which causes M to finally feel comfortable to be like, hey, I heard a story on that same television program I've been trying to tell you guys about all night that you've been not that you've been trying to ignore me about. They mentioned two different stories in total at different points in the movie. One of them is the T- Tunguska event. It's called the Tunguska event and um, it was a comet or a meteor or something like that that entered the atmosphere over Siberia and exploded over Earth. So it didn't actually have physical impact, it didn't touch Earth didn't leave a crater or anything, but the force of that explosion flattened trees for hundreds of miles. But it only killed about one to two people. Because they so were in Siberia, like there's people. probably only two people there. Yeah, but so they don't necessarily... The basically, yeah. Right. right. Well, that doesn't make me feel better. And when was this? It's like in 1908, 1903. Uh, and there's a comet in 1923 in Finland that supposedly started making people act weird. Like, the great story that they tell, which is a fun little story, and you've probably heard it before. It's one of those sort of creepypasta stories. Is it real? Um, I have no idea. Are these real events? I know the Tunguska event is real. I don't know about this Finland one. But the, the fun little individual story they tell in that Finland one is that a woman calls the police because she says her husband isn't her husband. And when they ask her, why don't you think it's your husband? She says, because I killed my husband. And so she just admitted to killing her husband, but they can't arrest her because her husband is right there. Like, what an interesting concept. And I'm sure that's been explored in movies before, and I just can't think of it right now. There's an interesting thing. So everything that feels hippie about M is going to be real. Everything that feels hippie about Beth is real. She is going to name a door as a door that leads to nowhere and yeah. say that it's all off with the feng shui. And that sounds ridiculous, but then later... It's an important door, yeah. She's going to say, you just came from the door that leads to nowhere. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is really important. And Metaphorically, it's, gonna... it's it's right, but like what she's talking about, it's a little weird. <laughs> uh, but Well, personally, I think the point is... All those things that you guys try to ignore and squash and th- think of as stupid and silly. There's something to them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, people don't just, people don't often just make things up out of nowhere. Usually there's, you know. It comes from something. comes from something. And the more you try to deny that stuff, like, the more you're going to see that you're wrong. Right. I thought that was fun. It's 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 fun. I think I it, like fun I things. It, right, and but you want to squash the no, fun I, out of life. I think it contributes to the creepiness or the interesting thought experiments. But I don't get a. I don't think that a writer gets to write something and make it true and then point to it and go, "See, it's true." Like, <laughs> no, it's true because you made it true. You created a scenario where it had to be true because you created this world, and now you're trying to apply it to the real world. Like. No, you you just wrote it. I could write anything. It doesn't make it true. I forget why he brings it up. 
But Kevin will tell a story about when he and Lori were dating. Oh, about a bear. He had a dream. We're talking again about, like, visions and hippie stuff. He talks about a dream he has where he is attacked by a bear. And then, like, the next day, a dog attacks him. And then the owner comes up and is like, bear, bear. And, like, the bear is the name of the dog. And he's like, see, oh, I had a vision. And then it came true. And then somebody says, never mind the fact that bear is, like, the most popular name for a dog. Like, the odds are pretty high, actually, that the dog that attacked you the next day would be named Bear. M gets upset because of all the stories you could possibly tell, you tell the one from when you were dating Lori, which I think is really fucking unreasonable. Like, he's not allowed to have a past. Wow. He's not allowed to have a history. I was on M's side on this No, absolutely not. It's a stupid thing to get upset. He has a fun story. Is he no longer allowed to tell fun stories? But the the implication, and this is what he says, uh-huh. we don't have any wild stories like that. And it's like, what yeah. does that say about us? I think that us? says something about their, about their relationship, for sure. Right. They have a weird relationship. But I think the idea that that wasn't a story with me, and you have no existence before I came into your life, no, is a little specific- shitty. Specifically <laughs> to say a story about a girl you used to date who happens who is to in be the room. in the room yeah. at the time. I understand is why uncomfortable. It, I, exactly, I understand why it makes M uncomfortable, but I don't think it makes Kevin a jackass. I think if she comes up to him and is like, "Hey, you know what? Lori's here, and it made me feel really weird." That And she does bring it up to him. It made me feel really weird that you told this story about this fun time that you had with this other woman who's obviously she still has the hots for you. I think Kevin would be a jackass if he was like, you know, nope, I don't care that this bothers you. He does say, like you say, he does say that we don't have stories like that. Oh, they're not crazy enough for you. It's a good thing. I don't need crazy stories like that anymore. We don't have any wild stories, and that's equally insensitive. I think Kevin is an insensitive prick (laughs) for most of this movie. I just don't think that it's reasonable to say, don't tell any stories, or that he should know not to tell any stories. I think that's the important part. She comes to him, tells him how she feels, and he needs to react accordingly. But to just assume that he's not allowed to tell any stories, by default, he should already know that, is a little ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. Kevin's a fucking jackass. No. Baby, when the lights go out. (laughs) One lady says, I'm so glad I'm not high. And I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Because at this point, like I said, their phones are all shattering. The internet has gone out. Now the lights go out. Uh, Hugo's phone specifically shatters. Yes. So, Hugh, it's not Hugo. Oh, the actor's name is Hugo. Is it really? Yes, the character's name is Hugh. So, Hugh and Amir are like, dude, there's a house down the road that's got its lights on. It's got its lights on. The only house that's really weird. Let's go see them. Uh huh. And everybody's like, what? Why? No. And even the guy whose house it is is like, I've got a generator. Like, I'll get the lights back on. But to Hugh's point, he says, you know, my brother told me if anything goes weird, to do whatever I can to get in contact with him. Maybe their phone's still working too. Maybe, you know, we can contact my brother that way. So that's that's the excuse for why Hugh and Amir go. When they come back and... So they all go outside to watch them leave, but they also see that it's really pretty outside and they can see the comet. But when they come back inside, they notice that a glass has been broken that was not broken previously. Uh-huh. 
So are we being told that they're going into a new house now? Okay, so we're getting into the weird concepts. I don't think so. This is not the first change. No, no. The first change is with Hugh and Amir because they pass through the dark place. Okay, so just the, the glass breaking is just another thing from the comet. Yes. Yeah, just like their phones shattering. There's a loud bang on the door outside and they don't know what that's about. Ten minutes after Amir and Hugh have left and then Mike comes back in, the lights come back on because he got the generator running. So now they're the only house in the area except for this other house that has lights. Yes. So the guys come back and Hugh is bleeding and they have a lockbox in their hands. And this is where everything becomes confusing. Yes. Because Amir is like, I don't know what the fuck happened. Hugh went around the side of the house and came back with a box and now has a wound on his head and refuses to say where he got the box. And Hugh will never explain. And is that because these are two different, this is a different Hugh and a different Amir? Okay, so I will tell you right now, this is a different Hugh and a different Amir. I don't think they know they're at the wrong place yet. Then why is Hugh acting so strangely about the box? Because I think he's freaked out that they're even asking about it. And he's realizing in real time, something's off. Why don't they know about the box? We made the box. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no. So he's starting to just figure this out as it goes. I don't think that this is a villainous thing. It's just what happened to my friends. And so he's being really cagey about it. Mike breaks the lock on the lockbox and they find pictures of all of them with numbers on the back and a ping pong paddle. The important things about the pictures are the picture was taken of Amir that night and nobody took a picture of him that night. The picture of M and Kevin is actually a single picture that's cut in half. And the numbers seem random. There are like three ones. There are no fives or no threes or something like that. doesn't really matter. And so they write them all out, the numbers over the name, just so they can see like, okay, do the numbers mean anything? Can we figure something out? And why the fuck is there a ping pong paddle? And why was Hugh bleeding? What they don't tell you is that I'm going to call them for the time being blue team and red team. When the lights go out. Yeah. Uh, they get boxes of glow sticks, and there's green, red, and blue, and our prime universe only opens the blue one. They leave with blue glow sticks, and they come back with red glow sticks. So there's a blue team and a red team. There are going to be many, many more by the end of this movie, but red team and blue team, Hugh and Amir, get into a kerfuffle. And when Red Team, Hugh, and Amir try to go back inside, they end up in Blue Team's house. And they don't realize it at first, and they that's what they're figuring out as they go. So that's why he's bleeding. And he's not about to explain it, especially because he didn't know who that Hugh and Amir were. And he now he doesn't know who these people are. And so he's being very cagey about it. Hugh decides he's going to write a note, and he's going to go back and leave it on the house. But before he can... There's a knock on the door, they open the door, and there's the note. There are two notes in the same place right now. And later on, by the end of the movie, they're going to find two more. Well, the camera will find two more. It's interesting to think about, we're not even in Blue Team's house anymore. But there will be, at one point, four versions of this note, all in the same place. Basically just implying that 
the differences are multiplying. There are more and more different versions of this house that just keep getting created. They describe that a big dude shows up. That's obviously Hugh. But they just, why would they assume it's Hugh at this point? Because they don't know exactly what's going on. It's around this time that M is going to figure out that she's the one who wrote the numbers on the back of the picture. She looks at what she wrote down on the pad of paper with their numbers and names all in one place and then looks at the numbers on the actual pictures and is like, this is my handwriting. Mm-hmm. What the fuck is happening? This kind of information leaks around. That is when the owner of the house, Mike. the guy from the show, Xander. Mike, yeah, he's like, all right. Let's go and check this out. If there's another me, I want to see it. And Kevin's like, I'm going too. And because Kevin's going, Lori's like, I'm going too. And because Lori's going, Emma's like, I'm going too. Yes. And so the four of them all go. And they are going to comment later about how they pass through what they keep calling the dark place. Mm-hmm. It's basically the light of the house is what illuminates the, the world around them. And past that light, it's like pitch black darkness. And you have to pass through that darkness to get to the other house. And effectively, what we're seeing is that just this area in the light is its own little private roulette. Yeah, basically. And so when you pass through that darkness, you know you're headed to one house, but it might be a completely different house than the one you thought you were headed to. So there are a billion different dimensions that you are getting spit out into every time you go into this black area. And they're going to mention later... That the only differences between them are basically the decisions that they make. Yeah. But just that night. it's There's nothing different about these universes from prior to the comic. What you're not realizing is, I've slept with your wife in every dimension. Yes, it's <laughs> such a good line. <laughs> there, is, there is a time later when there's a big co- uh, confrontation because it's going to come up soon, actually, because Mike slept with Beth, Hugh's wife, ten years ago. And... He's going to try to blackmail himself. When they think there's only one other house, he's like, well, I know that Mike's secrets and I'm going to blackmail him and uh, we'll get there in a second. But it's such a great line to point out that the only differences are what's happening tonight. That is it. So anyway, when they go out, when they get to the other house, Mike realizes, wait a minute, this is fucking my house. What's going on here? Did we circle around? What's happening? And then they run into themselves. And it's a really great visual indicator because they're all wearing the glow sticks around their necks. There's one team of four wearing blue glow sticks and another team of four wearing red glow sticks. And then red team bolts. Mm -hmm. They run. And so eventually blue team comes back into the house. They're like, holy shit. Uh, They go home and they tell the rest of everyone that they saw themselves. And that's this is when they realize that this must be their box. This is the red team's box. And that's what they maybe what they were looking for. But mm-hmm. that this is just what they figure out. They figure out that there are multiples. And they don't waste any time on understanding, yes, these are duplicates of ourselves. Well, they have a, a brief conversation. <laughs> but it's solved in that one conversation. But it's important because that's what's going to lead to them thinking about the book. That they're going to go and retrieve from the car, which is going to help them realize that, yes, it's very possible to have all of these uh, dimensions pop up, but they're all eventually going to collapse. While all this is happening, what's going on with Lee, Kelsey? Lee's taking a nap. Why is she taking a nap, Kelsey? She took some ketamine. <laughs> yes, she took some of the, uh, a couple drops of the formula that Beth brought. Yes. 
So fun. So when M finds that out, she's going to accuse her friend of drugging them all. She doesn't accuse her. And I think that's really, really important. Beth gets really fucking defensive. She's like, I feel like I have to ask, did you put any of that in our drinks tonight? And Beth gets super offended. And M's like, just answer the fucking question. If it's no, I'll believe you. I don't think you did it. But weird shit's happening right now. We might be hallucinating. Is there any chance that we took those drugs and didn't know it? And Beth gets really fucking defensive. Like, just say no. She'll believe you. I but the question should that. be asked. I can understand it. Could you I imagine? Would be offended too. Can you imagine not asking that question because you were Look, worried about offending I'm not somebody? Walk around with ketamine in my purse. But if I was, yeah, <laughs> if you were walking around with ketamine in your purse might we consider that you might do something else that's highly illegal and maybe ethically questionable? But if I was, I would be very offended that someone would think that. This is my point. I don't, uh, I understand that Beth gets offended. It's not weird that she gets offended. What is weird is that she's surprised that M asked the question. Like, come on, you're the one that brought the fucking ketamine and now we all might be having hallucinations. But they're not. They're not. Only Lee. Lee was the only one that had any. But so, once they've read this book, they're like, oh shit, we can't let the other group find out about the book. You're right, Kelsey. I have here. Hugh's brother left a book on gravitation behind. He's a teacher at UCSD. Fucking thought so. Yeah, it has notes for his lecture. And he left it at the house. And Beth put that book in an envelope to be mailed and then left the envelope in Hugh's car but never got around to telling Hugh because she found it when, whenever, I don't know, but it's in his car. So it's there at the house uh, in the backseat of, of Hugh's car. So after they found it and discovered that these realities can collapse, they're like, well, we don't want them to know that. So that's, what's going to cause more of them to leave and to retrieve this book. And that is going to cause, uh, you know, other realities are going to realize this too. So at one point, we're going to have an evil Hugh and Amir show up and take. Well, no, that's the thing you say. At one point, we have an evil Hugh and Amir show up. That's the red team Hugh and Amir that came back a long time ago. They've been there this whole time. And so this is now red team learning about the book in real time. They'll be alone at one point, and then they'll take out their red glow sticks. Be like, we're both red, right? Like, what the fuck is going on? And they have a conversation for the first time, and they're going to grab everything and get it out of there. They do have a conversation about a couple of different things here that's worth mentioning. There's Schrodinger's cat. When we talk about these other realities collapsing, this whole thing is premised upon the concept of Schrodinger's cat, which is a thought experiment. It's not a real thing. It's that... A cat's in a box with a vial of poison, and when the box is opened, the poison breaks and either kills the cat or it doesn't kill the cat. It's a 50-50 chance, and you won't know until you observe it, right? And observing it is what's going to potentially break the poison, break the vial of poison, and kill the cat. The whole point is that your observation of something affects that something, and we know that that is true, like with the concept of light. Light is both a wave and a particle, and it doesn't choose, in quotes, which one it is until it's observed. So we observe it, and it stays one thing or another, like this, it doesn't fluctuate between them. It is a wave, When you look at it behaving like a wave, 
but only when you look at it. So, like, what is it? You know, like, that's the question. It, it, that's what Schrodinger's cat is all about. It's saying that the cat is both alive and dead in the box at the same time until you observe it and it locks in a reality. That's what that's all about. And so it's called decoherence, which is the concept that keeps these two realities completely separate. But now this comet is causing them to blend into each other. Lori also brings up sliding doors because she's the least intelligent of all of them. Yes. But it's also a stand-in for audience members right. who are I mean, feeling confused. And people who've seen sliding doors or even heard of sliding doors, it's a really easy concept to grasp, right? The idea is she either gets in the subway or she doesn't get in the subway, and her life is radically different depending on the variation at one point in time. There are also a ton of video games that are like this. Oh, yeah, totally. So we should just mention the Schrodinger's cat thing because that is kind of the basis for all the theory going on here in the movie. I have written down here, because Mike saw Lee, but not Beth, they assume that the red team doesn't have the book. And remember, this is only when there's two realities. The cat's alive or dead, and that's it, right? They assume that the red team doesn't have the book because Beth is the only one that knew about the book. And in that reality, Beth must be the one taking the nap. Okay, so how do we keep the red team from finding out about the book? We should probably go over there and steal the book. And Mike has this great idea to blackmail himself about that affair with Beth in order to keep that. That's what it is. Keep them from finding the book is he's going to blackmail his other self to prevent them from going to look for the book. This is when they have the conversation about did Beth drug everyone? This is when Hugh and Amir reveal the fact to them to each other that they have red glow sticks. They find that the red box has not been opened at this house. So this is absolutely not their house. And then they take the pictures and the book and they fucking leave. It's also around this time that the concept of what if there's a dark version of ourselves is brought up, which is going to become important because later Mike Mike is going to say, what if we're the dark versions? And I personally feel that the whole point of this is to point out we are all the dark versions of ourselves. Yeah. We are all Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is exactly what the point was of that. Like, we all have bad and good inside of us, and it just depends on what circumstances pulls which side of us out. Yeah, I think I think that's entirely right, actually. I mean, think about... I'm going to bring it up a little bit later, too. Remedial Chaos Theory, the episode of Community, where a single die is tossed... And depending on how that die lands, dictates a number of wildly different scenarios, just based on who goes and gets the pizza, uh, changes everyone's lives drastically. And there is a darkest timeline. What Mike's saying here on its surface is, if one of the two of us is the evil version, what if that evil version is me? What if I'm the evil version? That's on the surface. But digging a little bit deeper... The point is, is that Mike is both of them. They're both him. If any of them are a darker version, an evil version, a goatee-wearing Spock, they all are. Because they all are Mike. Just pushed one way or another over the course of a single night, mm -hmm. based on what stimuli they are exposed to and decisions that they make. Yes, which is a slippery slope argument because I am currently reading a book yeah. about Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> a 
and the idea being like, well, do we all have that capability inside and, of us? And at some point, and the argument is made that yes, we all that's do. That's the argument yeah. because it did happen, uh-huh. and, it's, and it, it it is happening. And it's just like I don't know how to feel about that because like there's a part of me that's just like no. But there were Nazis who did say no, and that's an important thing yeah. to remember as well. So yeah. Mike comes back in the house, having secretly left the note. Like, we don't see him leave, but we see him come back. And just remember, every time somebody leaves the house and goes any distance through the, the dark place, they come back to a different house. Every single time. Every single time there's a different house and there's all these different realities being created. So this is actually a different Mike, either a different Mike coming back to the same house or the same Mike coming back to a different house. And that's going to throw you for a loop a couple of different times. So that's an important concept to remember when we see somebody go outside and come back. They're either different or the house is different. It does lead to some fun interactions. Yes. Uh, at one point, Mike will return and like be out of breath and like freaking out, and he'll be like, "I've been gone for forty-five yeah, minutes. I was watching. Time. I was watching Hugh and like all this stuff." And they're like, "You, you just, just left. left." Yeah. <laughs> I just dropped off the letter, and um, and I was going to wait to see the reaction. But I fucking freaked out. You got like five minutes. Like 45 minutes, dude. No. Bullshit. No. You talked to me, you went in the kitchen, you'd be gone for five, maybe ten tops. You're fucking crazy. And that's when he starts drinking. And Lee's going to get really upset. They have a really sweet relationship, I think, Lee and Mike, where he's kind of a fuck up. And he's been sober for a while, but when he drinks, it's a bad time. And... I really appreciated that Lee empathized with him a little bit. Beth will say that stupid fucking thing that I hate when people say. It's like, I'm kind of an empath or whatever. It's like, no, fuck you. (laughs) Anyone who says I'm kind of an empath is actually probably kind of an asshole, actually. Think of one person you've heard of that said that they're an empath. I thought that you watched that video about that lady who was like, people who are empaths are people who were abused growing up. Yeah, okay, so there is that theory that people that think that they're empaths are just more observant of people's behavior and better predictors of how they're going to act because they have to be, because they come from scenarios where they need to be hyper aware of how someone might react to certain stimuli because they're in danger. So yes, that's absolutely the the case. Who knows what, what Beth went through in the past, but again, that's the past. The now? She's kind of an asshole. <laughs> anyway, it does, the, the one does not preclude the other is basically my point. Lee sits down with him and, like, talks to them about the situation that they're in, understands why he might feel compelled to start drinking under the scenario because he's, like, feels like a lost sense of control. And, like, connecting with him and not just being another stimulus that might drive him to drink even further. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's really big of Lee. I will not say that, oh, Mike's a great guy and he's really great for their relationship, but I think Lee is a great woman. Anyway, they find out that Hugh and Amir have left with the book and the pictures. They told Kevin that they wanted to take the box back, but everyone figures out that in actuality they were the red team. So they start to like piece these things together. 
And then when Kevin tries to leave by himself later on, he's going to want to like, I'm going out there. I'm going to get him. We need to get that book back or whatever. Emily tries to stop him and he doesn't leave, which is interesting because if you remember, they're not given scripts, these actors. They're given like a paragraph that says, here's what you think. Here's what you know. Here are your driving forces. Sort of just like in a murder mystery dinner party, right? Um, but it's more improv He was told to leave the house. She was told to not let him leave the house. And that's how it played out, which I thought was really interesting. Well, it worked because his frustration of not being let out of the house by his, by his girlfriend is probably what leads to him allowing himself to be kissed by Lori here. Yeah, which is going to come up pretty soon, and then Beth is going to see it. Mm-hmm. And then and Beth is going to go and tell and snitch. And I'm like, bitch. <laughs> I said, bitch. You slept with right. what's his name? Right. Yeah, you think about it. But I mean, that's not a good enough reason not to tell somebody an important thing that you think they should be told. I don't know. It's one thing to be like, oh, my God, my friend. It's another to be like. That whore. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But Kevin, when confronted by M about this is going to like gaslight M a little bit here. We didn't talk about this last week and I kind of regret it in the edit. I was thinking about it and in the initiation, Wes, the brother gaslights his sister when he says I was in bed asleep. And she's like, I saw you. It was three o'clock. You could not have been here in bed by two thirty because I saw you there at three o'clock. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you. I was in bed. Like, that whole, like, you're sounding crazy right now. You know, like, that's... Well, but he was drugged. Right. But he is lying to her, knowingly. He cannot verify that he was in bed at 2.30, yet he insists that he can. Well... It's literally impossible for him to be able to verify that. It might just be that he's clinging to that memory and hoping that that's what really right, happened. Right, but, I mean, we're talking about another movie here, but, <laughs> but, my, but the kind of the, the nature of initiation is, like, rape culture, and... Gaslighting is a part of that. Yes. And so, but that's kind of what happens here because Kevin is like, I don't know what Beth's talking about. It's like, you know, you know exactly what Beth is talking about. And now you're trying to make it sound like Beth is being crazy. And she's not. And this is me on Beth's side. <laughs> is, is everything okay? Is there something going on? That... Beth just walked up to me and... Uh... She didn't really say much, but she said that she saw you and Laurie talk in the hallway and... Jesus Christ, Em, I think we have some more important things to worry about right now than what Beth is saying. I love when Em figures it out. Yeah, so she's going to start figuring everything out here. I absolutely love how she figures it out. Yeah, tell us about that, Kelsey. Someone has attacked Hugh's car. Is it Hugh's car that gets the thing? Yeah, that gets broken into. That would make sense because because that's where the, the book, book is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but they are all outside on the street, and she goes to her car to get a ring. And you might, for a second, be like, "Oh, was he going to ask her to marry him?" And that's a whole thing. No, 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 no. It's just a cheap ring that they got at the carnival that she keeps in her car for some reason. Anyway, she goes to get it and put it on and she sees her boyfriend and she's like, 
babe, can we please talk about what just happened? Like, oh, look what I found. I found this ring, and I love you. And like, what's like, are we okay? What's wrong? Like, like yeah, no, we're fine. And he's like, I don't know what's going on with her. I'm still in love with you. We're fine. Emily M asks if they took anything from Hugh's car when they broke into it because she went to her car when they went to look at Hugh's car and why the window was broken. And that's when they both figure out that neither of them knows what the other is talking about. And they're talking to different versions of each other. And he just kind of creepily, they just like, like back away yeah, from each other. Yeah. It's really well done. She goes home back into the house, doesn't say anything Shows the ring to this Kevin, and this Kevin is like, yeah, whatever. This is what's starting things spinning in Emily's head, that even over the course of this night, it's going to have an impact on her relationship. And her relationship can crash and burn with this with this existing Kevin, or there's another Kevin out there where things are going great. Yes. However, this is not... She still hasn't gone full rope. No, yet. no, no. She's just thinking about this. This but is just the, sort of occurring the, the to her. The cogs are turning. The wheels yeah. are turning. But like, she has not gone full evil, Emily. Yet. Yeah. There's one thing that we didn't mention. She's already asked Mike to find the pictures. Like, do you have any pictures of me and Kevin? And they find that picture that was in the lockbox from earlier. And she's like, why was it cut up? And she's she's going to start piecing this together. Em is really the one that starts figuring this stuff out and gets all the really fun thought experimenty stuff uh, going a little bit later. One thing is, I wonder if M figured out that Kevin, that this Kevin was lying about what happened between him and Lori and what Beth saw because of how he reacted to the ring. She saw how Kevin might normally react and then saw how this Kevin reacted and is like, you son of a bitch, you did kiss her. <laughs> Like, that's how she figured it out. But we don't get that explicitly. But in any case, yes, Amir is going to start talking about randomness and uh, multi-factor authentication because M's going to start figuring out what's going on. They now know for certain there are different groups of us. We know this. So why don't we make a way to know where our home base is? Yeah, because, oh, what spurs this on is the first Hugh and Amir come back. The ones who originally left. And they're like, we were in this whole other house. What the fuck? And we finally got back to our actual real universe. No, they haven't. They're actually a completely different one as well. Yes. So this is going to be a huge issue later, but they need to be like, okay, so obviously that lockbox was their way of knowing when they got to the right place. So how can we be sure when we find this box that we're at the right house whenever we leave? They're still assuming that they can ever get back to the same universe again. Yes. And we don't know that that's the case. Right. The more we learn, it's probably not the case. Right. But they still create this box and they're going to do a couple of things. They're going to take a picture of every single person. Which is why uh, the picture of Amir was taken that night. They had to take one because they don't have one of Uh Amir. Kevin does it and he's like, oh, I'm glad my friends care about me enough to keep pictures of me. Lee goes to find a box. Happens to be the exact same box. The exact same box. So they roll a die and they get different numbers. Yes, they all have different numbers. Different from the ones that they had before. Right. Yeah, they all, so they they write them on the actual pictures. But importantly, they had a conversation about, you know... Let's also put a thing in there to know that it's our house. And they list a couple of things. And if you're paying attention, they all say them very matter-of-factly, like a blank, 
like, a, like blank. a blank. And then Emily says, like a ping pong paddle. <laughs> and they because all that's are what like, they found in the first box. And everybody has the same reaction. Like, that yeah, they, I yeah, guess. Like that's the same reaction everyone has had to all these different things. Uh-huh. And she's like, yes, exactly. And like no one, everyone is just as confused because none of these people are have had the, the same experience. House. Yes, they all saw a different box and everything. And so, I just think that it is very well done. It's so it's so fun. So basically, everything that they every element of randomness that they put in is a different point of divergence. And the more points of divergence they can add to this box, the more unique it is. This is why they use a coaster. What Amir calls a quick code because he is a web developer. The quick code is the thing that the website shows you from a list of things, and you have to select the one that you originally picked when you set up your account. This is one element of what's called MFA, or multi-factor authentication. This is why when you log into a website and the site doesn't recognize your IP address, it sends you an email address to confirm. Like, that's multi-factor authentication. Do you use your thumbprint? Do you use your face? Like... All sorts of things that, so the site can be as sure as possible that you are who you say you are. And there are a couple of elements of this. It's something you know, something you have, and something you are. If you can get one of each of these elements, then that's really fucking secure. Something you know, like your password, something you have, like a dongle that you connect, or, you know, one of the ones that have the little codes that you type in, or your phone, as the case may be, so they can send you a text message and you enter in the code. And then something you are, like a thumbprint or your face. That makes it really fucking secure. So they're adding these points of divergence. And uh, in this case, they put a coaster into the box, like Kelsey said. They use a blue pen. She's like, I'm going to use a blue pen to write these down because the other team used a red pen. And remember, for RM, the teams are red team, blue team, and that's it. So she uses a blue pen. And then when they're done with all this stuff, she checks the numbers. She compares the numbers they wrote on the on the pictures to what she wrote earlier on the pad that was in the other box. Something's off about the numbers written down on this pad. They're different than what she originally wrote down, and they're in green. This is how M realizes she's not in her original house. Mm-hmm. When she left and went to her car and then came back, she came back to a different house. Now remember everybody, Mike has been drinking throughout the night, so she sees that he's drunk, so she's like, I'm going to go ask him what he thinks because he's drunk and maybe he won't remember that we had this conversation. Yeah, so she rewrites the original numbers in red. Uh, she asks everyone first what their what their numbers were, what they remember them to be, and there's a mix. They're, it doesn't match what she remembers. So she tells Mike, and they figure out that Beth and Lee never left the house, so they're the originals to this house. And the pad of paper that has the green numbers written down, that's original to this house. They're in the greenhouse. And Hugh and Amir are also not in the right house. They're in a different one. This is where M figures out that that dark place is what shifts them around, and they need to figure out a way back to their original house before the comet passes, or they're going to be stuck in this version forever. But my question is at this point, as long as you're all together in your version, the only variances are what happened that night. So who cares? Who really cares? Well, the There's something about your mind rejecting it. I guess that's probably one point. Like, it could be very bad. But they collapse on their own, is what it says. And so you might be in one that just collapses on its own. You don't know. 
Anyway, Hugh finds the blackmail note that is well, left of the house. Hold on. Okay, go ahead. Let's talk about Mike's response. He's like, whatever. <laughs> so yeah, so Mike is a little bit drunk, but Mike is just like, it doesn't matter. This is the house we're stuck in. Yeah. You go out there, you have no way to know if you're getting back to the original. Uh-huh. So just deal with this one. And for a little bit. That's my point of view. For a little bit, she's like, okay, I guess he's right. But then this world's going to go to hell. You also have to remember that this is the version of Kevin that definitely kissed Lori. So in whatever percentage of these houses that exist, in some percentage, Kevin kissed Lori and M thinks she's in that universe. So, yes, it's going to go to shit. Hugh finds the blackmail note that Mike left and he's like, what's going on? Mike sort of brings up the fact that there are all these different variances to deflect. That Hugh's phone is not cracked. Yeah. And uh-huh. everyone is like, your phone should Your definitely phone should be, be cracked. cracked. It cracked earlier in the night. <laughs> What's going on? And this is where they all learn what happened between Beth and Mike. And Hugh gets really upset. As they're having this conversation, Emma's trying to figure out what everyone's quick code was, what was in the box that they first found. Beth and Lee had an oven mitt. There was a stapler, a napkin, and M's ping pong paddle. And, like, everyone's different, except for Beth and Lee, because they never left the house. But at this heightened emotional moment, a note is going to pass under the door. Well, this is this is what I'm talking This is the, the blackmail note. This is what kind of starts everyone talking. Mike deflects because of... All the variances that he's noticing. And Hugh just keeps going back to this note. He's like, what the fuck happened? And this is where they all find out what happened. Check your phone. Is your phone broken? What the fuck does that have to do with anything? Is your phone broken? What the fuck does that have to do with anything? Just show us. No, my phone is not broken. Now, what does that have to your do with you sleeping with my wife? It's always been broken from the beginning of the evening. Your no, Evan's phone is broken. Yeah, so is yes, yours. Your the box, the first box that we got, we had a like a random item. What what what, what was what was your random? What the fuck does this what have to do with anything, Mike? Answer out. him. The stapler. No, no, no. What? It was that we had an oven mitt, and what? ours was a ping pong paddle. What? Mine was a napkin. What the fuck are you talking Jeez, about? Hugh, that is not my Lee. That is not your Beth, and I am not your Mike. Dude. You you aren't mad at me. What? We're in a different a different reality here. Yeah, we're in a different reality because the reality where I am from, my best friend didn't sleep with my wife. Hugh, do you not understand what I'm saying? This all started tonight, and if there are a million different realities, I have slept with your wife in every one of them. And Hugh punches him. At some point when they calm everything down and they separate them, Mike bursts in the door wearing a green glow stick and punches our Mike. Yeah. <laughs> and just starts beating the shit out of him. Right, because he thinks he's being blackmailed, blackmailed. by yeah. this uh-huh. Mike. Yeah. So it's just, it's spiraling out of control. And he's been drinking. And Emily realizes, I don't have to be stuck in any reality if I don't want to be. Right. She leaves when Mike is like passed out. Lee's crying. Is he dead? Was he just killed? Lori starts panicking and Kevin comforts her. And Em's like, nah, fuck this shit. I'm out of here. This universe sucks. And she quietly backs out the door. As she does... She finds Hugh's note taped to the door. Yes. <laughs> the Hugh's note from way, way earlier. And she's like, man, this fucking sucks. And so she just goes from house to house. Reality to reality. And she finds one has a stuffed monkey 
in the lockbox. She goes to another because she didn't find her own. And she's just just keeps looking at what's different about them. And one, everyone is arguing and she's there. She goes to another house. There are two mics and both of them are gagged and tied to a chair. She goes to another one. This is a red house. And Kevin is with Lori. Uh, and Emily's not there. And we get this moment where she looks up at the comet and we get to see the comet. She goes to another one and everyone's happy. They're chatting. They're comfortable. She's there. She's with Kevin. Like, this is the reality Lori that she wants. Lori and Amir seem happy. Yeah. This is the reality that she wants. So she grabs the bat that's there at this house. And all of a sudden, outside, Hugh's car window breaks. And they all go outside. This is the first time this version of them have ever been outside. Yeah, so the one thing you know is that at the very beginning, when Amir and Hugh wanted to leave, someone convinced them not to. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a problem here because M, the M of this house, goes to her car to get the ring. And this is where our M attacks her. The problem is, is that I'm pretty sure M cycled when she went to her car the first time and she came back to a different house. I think you only feel that way because that's where she had the conversation with the different, different Kevin. Kevin. But she she goes through the, the black once with the four guys and they all come back together. But she's different from all those guys later on. And she comes back to a completely different house. So uh, maybe she did or maybe she didn't. It would require some thinking. But there is potential that if... When she went to her car the first time, she cycled to a different universe. How would she get back to the same one she just saw when she attacks this M at her car? Wouldn't that be past the dark place? But either way, we can just assume that that's not the case and some other reason why she cycled differently from everyone else. She attacks this M and just beats the shit out of her. Um, she just knocks her out and puts her in the trunk, which is a really dumb idea. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen to that Emily? Yeah, exactly. She goes in, tries to pretend like everything is okay. Yeah, and Kevin kisses her when she shows him the ring. Oh, this is a great reality. My relationship is doing great. He's really affectionate. Oh, we have this great story of when we went to the fair or wherever it was that they got that ring. They all go outside to watch the comet and it's breaking up in the atmosphere. Ah, oh, finally, I found my reality, the one I want to stay in. She goes to the bathroom, and there's an M in the bathroom staggering around. Now, here's the question. Is this the M she just beat up? Or is this another M that also had the same idea and beat that M up? Is this a third M? Or is it the same one who managed to stagger their way back into the house? I think it's the first one, not only because that's more intriguing... But because the other M staggering back in the house, how would they get to the bathroom? How'd they get out of the trunk? Yeah. Why wouldn't they come in through the front door? Exactly, exactly. So I think the M she just beat up is a bad guy M for beating up the M that actually belongs in this universe, who's now staggering around in the bathroom, I guess, waking up. And so she hits her with the top of the toilet tank and then hides her in the bathtub. But in the in the Which again is a really dumb idea. Yeah. In the mix up the ring fell off. The ring fell off, so she takes the ring from that M, and we see the ring on the bathroom floor. Now, we do know that M is starting to lose it at this point, because as she leaves, she's making some bad decisions and some brash decisions, because as she leaves the bathroom and goes back to see everyone, she just fucking collapses, and she passes out. She wakes up the next morning. Lee is making breakfast. Oh my god, I've been out all night. 
What about the other M or the other M's? Nobody seems to be aware of anything because Lee's just making bre- uh, breakfast. Beth comes out of the bathroom having taken a shower in that bathroom. What the fuck is going on? She goes outside. Hugh's windshield is cracked, not broken, and the book is still there. She goes to her car, and Kevin is there, and he gives her back the ring that he found in the bathroom. And she's like, oh shit, he did find that ring and that M was not there. And then he gets a call. Oh, weird, it's you. And he answers, and he looks at her, and she looks sort of apprehensive and guilty a little bit, like she can't look him in the eye. End of movie. It's really fucking cool. (laughs) I think it's a very good movie. It's so cool. There's this definitely a what next vibe to the ending. But in this case, it's an exciting question. Like there's plenty of things that could happen. Anything could happen as a result of this. That's kind of the nature of the movie itself. So it just reinforces that. And it's also a fun thought experiment to think about what comes next. As opposed to those movies where everything ends in chaos and they're ah, ah, breathing at the end of it. All right, everything's okay. And then you're like, what next? Like, how do they go home? Aren't the cops going to care that all these people are dead? Like, those questions that sort of ruin the movie it, it retroactively, this this doesn't. This is a what next that actually adds to the movie. And so I really appreciate that. It's like, what is, how is Kevin going to react? Is she a completely different M just because of the events of a single night? An M that's willing to murder a person or at least beat them up and hide their body and do what with them after that does she even know has she even thought that far versus this is the same exact m that's just loving up on her on her boyfriend kevin but is it because that m probably beat up another m that m that was in the bathroom is the good one you know like what is how can you change over the course of a single night i think is really really interesting It's interesting to think about how subject to the right circumstances and the right stimuli, you could be a completely different person at the end of one night. The problem is, is what creates those different stimuli are their decisions. And there's nothing that causes them to make other decisions. So this is really a what if scenario where it's like, what if they made this choice? And what if they made this choice? Like you say, the house she ends up in at the end is just, what if they convinced Amir and Hugh not to leave? And nobody left the house that night. Everything would just be hunky-dory and fine. But there is no external stimuli that causes them to make a different decision. Versus in community where there actually is, it's the a random roll of the die. It's not like, well, what if we made a different decision? No, it's what if something random happened, you know, uh, something outside of their decision. It's not a, it's not the same sort of what if. Does this make sense? Am I making sense? We were talking about this a little bit last night. It's fine that it doesn't come from external stimuli, but I would like to know what would cause somebody to make a different decision. If we know the circumstances they're exposed to causes them to become a different person and either beat up an alternate version of themselves, which happens a couple times in this movie, or just be perfectly happy and content, the difference is what circumstances they're exposed to. And they will make a particular decision 
based on those circumstances changing. But what sparks all these variances is just them making a, a different decision and the circumstances haven't changed. It's the same exact circumstances. Something has to change first. And in this case, nothing changes first. But, I mean, that's fine. It's just now a what-if scenario as opposed to a, you know, you know, like what if you made a different decision and not what if something led you to make a different decision. I just think it's interesting that you don't imagine that there are plenty of just moments where you just make a decision and then like two seconds later you're like i would i why why did i do that like it's it's crazy to me that you don't have that like you don't know what it's like to sure i do but it's just a thought experiment sometimes i make decisions that boggle my mind Mm -hmm. that like i'm like like I said, within moments, I'm like, that's not what I would have said or thought, but uh-huh. now I've already said or thought it, so you know, <laughs> now I have to deal with it. Um, right, but you did. And the fact that you don't understand why you did and it wasn't just a random thing, let's spin a roulette wheel to see what my reaction's going to be. No, you made a specific reaction because of of the circumstances that you were exposed to. And what I'm saying is we're presented with a myriad of different universes that are different, not because they were exposed to different circumstances, just because they just made a different decision. And there's not, no reason why they made a different decision. That's not hard for me to imagine. That's just not hard for me to imagine. I don't know. I see. I'm thinking like Jurassic Park chaos theory here. Like it looks random, but it's not. You know, everything is the inevitable result of everything else. And so I disagree with the inevitability part. I don't I see I don't. I think about the fact that our brains work the way they do because of learned behaviors and we learn those behaviors because of, you know, certain things. Like I think community solves that problem by throwing in an element of randomness. Now, chaos theory would argue that there was no randomness. The amount that he threw up, the die and the circumstances of the atmosphere caused the die to spin in a particular way. It landed in a particular way and it rolled in a particular way because of everything that came before it set up those circumstances for it to land a particular way. And there is no universe where it did not land that way. So I guess there is still that, but that's further deeper into the chaos theory hole. And it just gets really, really just deeper and deeper. It. Yeah, uh, that's fine. But I mean, the same sort of thing sort of applies to Donnie Darko and the idea that what is fate and what is free will. And interestingly, chaos theory sort of argues that it's fate, that Mm -hmm. fate exists. Absolutely. It exists because there is only one, there's only one inevitable outcome of everything of the big bang. And that's exactly what we are right now. I think that's pretty interesting. Like you thinking all like, Oh man, what am I going to do? What decision am I going to make right now? Oh, I'm going to make this one. That was totally random. Chaos theory says, no, your neurons fired in a particular way that led you to make that random decision. And then your neurons fired in that particular way because of all the previous experiences, learned experiences you had. And those experiences happened because of what happened before them. And the those only, experiences happened because of what happened before them. The only way I think that works is with robots. That's why I truly believe that AI will never actually be AI. Yeah. It'll be as close as you can imagine it, but it's an imagined thing. Right. Because somebody created that. Right. Somebody started that program. Right. And I do not think that applies to reality. See, this is my point. My point is, is that you overestimate the human brain <sighs> and that the human brain is just a complicated computer. It's a naturally occurring, complicated 
processing unit. And it does the same exact thing. Like the, the standards that we have for AI are that basically the Turing test is, can you convince a human that it's, that it's not an AI? But if you say every single decision it made is a result of its programming, regardless of how natural it seems, chaos theory argues that that's exactly what human brains are. They're the naturally occurring result of the accumulated stimuli. No, because you can put two people through the exact same experience, uh-huh. and I'm, I, you yes. can deconstruct it down to babies, infants. Like yes. you can do that and put them through the exact same experience, and they will react differently. Right, because their brains are made up biologically of different stuff. They have different genes. They came from different sperm and a different egg. Like it's you cannot solve for every variable. There is a variable that you cannot control in every scenario. The closest you can get to that is twins. And what do we see with twins? There's some weird shit where they think exactly alike. Like, you know what I mean? And they don't always because we can't control for literally every single one of their experiences. One gets yelled at and the other doesn't because the mom's experiences were different or whatever, you know? So they, they end up a different way. But if you could control the experiences of two different people, down to every minute detail, you would end up with the literally the same exact person. But you can't so. control for that. I don't think so. Right, because you are living in a world where you can't control for that. And so that experiment is impossible to conduct. We couldn't even begin to try. But that's why I'm saying it's a thought experiment. If you could do it, you would end up with exactly the same person. If you could control that it was the same sperm and the same egg, which we get from particular twins... And you could control every element of their upbringing and they had the exact same stimuli. They would react in exactly the same way. But then even then, you couldn't necessarily guarantee that because there are going to be small variances in twins as well. Because of the circumstances of what happened, uh, you know, in the womb when they were developing and and random chance. And like, so, yeah, it's but even that random chance, that's a result of the inevitability, says chaos theory. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, it's fun to think about. I love this stuff, but it does kind of ruin stories like this. Egg bullshit. Well, I'm fine with disregarding it entirely because it's just a fun experience. I think this movie is great. I think it goes back to the idea of video games. I think video games are the perfect example. Mm-hmm. But you are that stimuli now in a video game. As the player, you are that stimuli. And you add variance into the simulation. Anyway, Kelsey. What do you think Coherence has on Rotten Tomatoes? Is this one 84? This one's 88. Oh my gosh. I just, I guess I just saw the eight uh-huh. on both of them. Because I, I, I do try not to look. Chris uh-huh. just sometimes doesn't prepare me right. I don't tell her to close her eyes. Because <laughs> like, so many of these different interfaces just have the Rotten Tomato score right on there. And even when you pause the movie, it's like, hey, did you know that it was rated this? <laughs> it's 88 a case study in less is more filmmaking coherence serves as a compelling low budget calling card for debuting writer director james ward burkett has a 65 metacritic out of 23 reviews four mixed and no negative which donnie darko cannot say for itself this is a hyper low budget movie but i would like to point out that we are working with two movies that were Directed by the writer. And both of them were good. Mm-hmm. Which is not very common. Mm-hmm. These are exceptional cases. Yes. I would argue. I think that's pretty great. 
So what, first of all, do you think 88 is overrated or underrated? Slightly underrated. Underrated. Okay. What would you give it? Give it a 90. I think for the budget this movie had, for the time this movie had, what they accomplished is so impressive. Yeah. I feel like this movie is a halfway point between Donnie Darko, which is character and emotion. Fuck the science because the science is ridiculous. (laughs) And Primer, which is all about the science. And the emotional element is there, but it's not as heavy. It's somewhere in the middle. And I appreciate that it sort of captures the best of both worlds there. I think I'm going to give it a 92. Not, I mean, 90 as well. Which means I, I gave it one point higher than Donnie Darko. I'm sorry about that, Kelsey. But I think this is a better movie. I disagree. I think that Donnie Darko hits on a more emotional level. It does. You're absolutely right. It does. I think that this movie is very good. But Emily kind of sucks. She's a bitch. Well, you know? this, but, She's a selfish bitch. But that's this version of Emily. How much of that is who Emily actually is and how much of that is a response to what happened that night. How much of that is telling us that we are our own dark versions. Right. That is in every single one of us. I think that's very good. Still sucks that our main character sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the point is kind of that we all do suck. There is the potential to suck in all of us. I think it did a lot more with a whole fuck of a lot less. And I think it deserves to be recognized for that. I think you're right that Donnie Darko is a more emotionally powerful movie. But also, I can't really take what I get from Donnie Darko and apply it to anything. You can take what you get out of coherence and apply it to your life. I can't control a jet engine with my mind and send it through a wormhole to kill me in the past. I can't do that. And how do you apply something like that to your actual life? What is it, just be nice to people? Is that the lesson we get from that? Versus this, which is, there's the potential for greatness and evil in every single one of us. And we and it can be pulled out by what you experience. But that either way, that is still you. And what are you going to do with that knowledge? How is that going to have an effect on your behavior? I think that's more profound. Anyway, this is a good week. It was a very good week. Not exactly the most horror-filled week. No. Well, Coherence is a lot scarier. It is. So it's a very scary idea. A lot of what the fuck is going on? Is this an imposter? You know, what's controlling this? There's a there's a comet. Is, are, are, is it aliens? <laughs> and then it ends on a terrifying idea of what we're capable of. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, great week. Thank you, patrons. I will point out that both of these movies were recommended previously. Jeffrey recommended Coherence and Harry recommended Donnie Darko. Thank you, Jeffrey and Harry. Yeah. So thank you guys very, very much. Really, really happy for an excuse to cover both of these movies. They're both really good. With that said, Kelsey, what are we watching next week? Well, next week, Chris, is your birthday. Uh, well, yeah, it's your birthday too, lady. This is your birthday. Too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we're gonna watch two weeks of birthday movies. All right. So, so what's in the first week? The first week, 
Oh no, she's laughing. What's happening? The first week is a movie called Allison's Birthday. Okay. It's from the 1980s. Uh-huh. And on her birthday, they're going to try and transfer her soul into an old witch. What? <laughs> what? We are also going to watch Book of Monsters. Really? Which is a movie about a, a girl on her 18th birthday and what happens then. All right. So, birthday-themed movies. Mm-hmm. Next week, is it going to also be birthday-themed movies, or is it going to be, like, movies you want to watch because it's your birthday? No, it's going to be birthday-themed. Okay, theme. all right, all right. That is next week... Until then, you can always find us at our website, podcemetery.com, and on Patreon, patreon.com slash podcemetery, also Twitter, at podcemetery. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice and rate and review. A five-star written review is the biggest help you can give us there, but even bigger than that, sharing us with your friends, and even bigger than that, is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Put you on camera, kitten. Where are you? Come here. Come here. Pick you up. Off. You want to say something to the microphone? Say something. Go meow meow. This is what the people want. They want to hear from you. That's not a good meow. That's a I don't want to be her daddy meow. You're so cute. You're so precious. But you got to be quiet, okay? We're going to do quiet time. Can you be quiet or are you going to meow when I don't want you to meow? Oh my god. What? Do you know who Dr. Thurman is? Dr. Thurman? What do you mean? From Donnie Darko. Do you know who that is? Yeah, I have it written down. Stop looking shit up before we're about to record. (laughs) I cannot believe it. I know. I have it written down. This reaction could have been in the episode. I don't want to discourage you from educating yourself. But not right before we do the episode. I was this close. If we had not gotten lunch first. (laughs) I've got rhythm. I've got music. I've got an answering machine who could ask for anything more.
Leave your name and leave your number. Okay, I'm going to stop and let you recover. <laughs> Gotta find the humor in it, Kelsey. Are you going to be able to talk, though? Yes, I can talk. Okay, just want to make sure that you're going to be animated. I'm not going to physically, be animated. But vocally, okay. He said to forcibly insert the book into my anus. <laughs> I fucked your wife in every universe. <laughs> It said there is no reality where I did not sleep with your wife. Up against your will. Wait a minute. Fate up against your will. I wonder what that's supposed to mean. But that's what we're talking about. The difference between fate and free will. That's in Killing Moon. Yeah, I know. And I'm just saying. I think that's interesting. That's why it's the first song of a movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hold on, let me see if we can even watch this. We can, it's on Tubi. I just looked it up. That's what I was taking that time for. Ah, okay. Allison's birthday. This is 1981? Look at this poster. <laughs> Damn. Oh, it's on Shudder. We go. don't need to watch it with ads if we can watch it on Shudder. There you go. Cool. This is a killer poster, too. What the hell, man? I've never even heard of this movie. Oh, that's fun. Okay. That's a terrifying person. It's okay. my birthday, too. It's my birthday, too. 